Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Filer. In today's episode, I talk with my uncle, Dwayne Filer. He's a writer, a music lover, a devoted husband, and father of two. In this episode, we talk about the writer's journey, the love of music, white flight in Compton, the politics of the hippie era, the legacy of racism in America, the evolution of black funk music, the cultural and educational importance of music, being yourself, raising your kids, his father slash my grandfather, and other topics. I hope you enjoy the show. Yeah, how are you? I'm doing fine. You know, through all this madness that's going on, just trying to hang in and remain positive. But um, it's a whole lot of stuff going on, man. It's it's not the easiest thing. Yep, yep. It's a wild time for us all. Exactly. Okay, so are we we starting now? We starting now, Karin? Yeah, yeah, we can start now. Okay. Okay, well, um, you know what? It, it's so interesting that you picked today to do it. Of course, I, I think you know what today is. It's uh, one year ago from Kobe Bryant and uh, the other eight that were killed in that crash. Is it? I did not know that. Today is the day. Wow. Exactly, exactly one year ago today. So sad. It was so sad, man. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And uh, Where were of course, you? you? Of course, you know, big Laker fan, man, and to mm. have something that hit. And, oh, boy, it just makes you, makes you take into consideration to live each day and to, um, you know, h- hug everybody that you love because you never know what might happen and... Where were you when, when did, it happened? Uh, let's see. I, I, you know what? I can't remember exactly where I was, but I remember, I think Kelvin, I think Kelvin called me and said, did you hear the news? And I said, what are you talking about? What news? Hmm. And I think he, he told me and I said, what? I just couldn't believe it. So I said, <clears throat> you know, I'll get back to you later. And of course, all I had to do was turn on the news and grab the phone and it was all over the place. So. Hmm. Mm. very 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 sad um yeah i was at the gym i couldn't i came came out of the shower and saw a text and that said uh kobe died and i thought it was a prank or something i didn't know i didn't know exactly how to interpret it uh but then i saw the screens and there he was yeah 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 it's just uh you know it it, it was kind of like a or foreshadowment of the year to come you know soon as as this happened you know it wasn't too soon after that uh, the first covid or maybe the covid hit uh days before this but uh boy i just want to kick 2020 in the rear man and get on with 2021 and well, just we're pray. doing it we're doing it yeah what are your plans for 2021 my plans are uh-huh. to, of course, keep writing, come out with my, I've, I've had nine books so far, but I'm working on my 10th, and my plans are for at least each year to get one out, so this one will be out maybe by mid-year, um, and, you know, what I always try to do, you know, I've had to self-publish uh, the nine prior, but there's a little game that you play where you try to find, you have to find an agent mm. uh, for your book if you want to get it, quote unquote, 
to a uh, legitimate publisher, you know, where you don't have to self-publish it yourself. And the only way to do that is you have to find an agent. Do you get the same cut or do you get a smaller cut? Oh, 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 yeah, no, no, no. You would get a much better cut uh, if you get it. When you self-publish, you have to do all the marketing. Mm -hmm. You have to uh, do all the editing or you can pay for an editor. You have to, uh, you know, sign up with um, with people who's, who claim that they're going to get your book out there. And then it's up to you to follow along. I haven't made any money, Kari. I, I, I don't mind telling you, don't. No uh, large amount of money. Uh, my diddly squat book has been my bestseller, uh, but <clears throat> that's okay. You know, the the main thing now is I would at least like to, before, you know, I'm gone from this earth, get at, at least one um, published by a quote-unquote legitimate publisher where I don't have to do all the work. And, mm. And I, I, I mainly just want to get it out there and for people to like it. That would be the main thing. So what you have to do, uh, publishing is, is, I mean, or finding an agent, it, it, it's a game, man. And anything in Hollywood, you have to write what's called a query letter. <clears throat> the query letter is a one-page letter. It's got to be very uh, exact, very distinct, where you're trying to like, um, it's like a pitch you want to get an agent interested in what you're doing. And if you get the agent interested, then he has ties to the publishing company. Because mm. if you go to any of these publishing companies, you know, I just throw out, you know, somebody like Penguin. They won't even look at your stuff unless it comes from an authorized um, literary agent. Mm. You you would just get a rejection letter. And I think they're they're assuming that the agent has read it and they trust the agent's judgment, I'm guessing. It, that's it exactly. I mean, it works the same way with, in in a lot of the uh, Hollywood and a lot of that that agent. But uh, yeah, the book publishing industry is a cutthroat industry, man. So that's what I will be doing after I get this thing out. I I usually send out at least a hundred um, query letters to agents, and after maybe about a hundred, a hundred and thirty, hundred and forty, if I don't find anybody or they say that they aren't interested, then you go ahead and self-publish. But uh, the most interesting time is when you get somebody, an agent who says, hmm, I may be interested, send me, you know, like I say, you at first you just send them a one-page query letter, and they may say, all right, well, you know what, send me the first 20 pages. Send me mm -hmm. the first 25 pages. Um, you know, tell me more about it. And at least when you get one of those, you, you start thinking, hmm, maybe this guy is interested. And so it is kind of interesting to put together those first um, pages of what they've requested. And you just keep your finger crossed and you you keep <laughs> you look at your emails each day. You look at your texts each day to see if maybe they're going to be interested. But uh, that's just the way it rolls. But you never stop. And like I say, if I send out about 100 and I don't get anything, then I... I say, okay, let me go ahead and self-publish. Is there a group of agents that are specifically for children's books? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there are various websites, uh, agent query, author query, and they will tell you exactly what they're looking for, fiction, nonfiction, um, as you said, children's stories, um, biographies, autobiographies. So that is one good thing. You do have... Uh, 
you just figure out what genre of book yours is mm, mm. and then you start sending it to those agents and then you have some agents who will look at anything but uh so that's what you do so it, it it's kind of fun uh you know and what i have i have a uh excel spreadsheet and i have the name of the agent that i'm sending it to of course the name of the book oh the name of the agent because there are a bunch of agents and what it may be in one uh, particular company and you don't want to send uh, the book to agents that are working for the same company. That is definitely a no, no. It then is. I put down like the, I put down like the date, mm. uh, uh, the name, the date, uh, what I sent them. And then of course, at the end I have, um, rejection. <laughs> and that's where, when you get the, uh, the email that they say, Oh, we came close. We are very interested, but uh, at this particular time, um, you know, we we don't have, uh, uh, you know, uh, we don't think that it'll 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 sell, or we don't think this, and uh, you know, we're sorry. Usually, they're 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 real nice, and they'll let you know, you know, why they rejected it. They they may not give you a specific answer or a specific reason why it's rejected, but at least they'll. They're pretty nice, and they'll say, so, you know, good luck, uh, but we're going to have to pass. Mm. So then I just mark that off, and like I say, when I get to about 100 rejections, then it's time to to look for a self-publisher. Well, at least they're nice about it. So I imagine some industries, maybe Hollywood uh, acting, they just give you a cold, hard no, no explanation. You, you will get some of them, but mm. I would say the majority of them... <clears throat> Or, or, or at least, um, you know, uh, pretty nice. And they will at least, because they understand, you know, you've been working on this thing, you put your time into this thing. And what they'll say is, uh, you know, if you've got something coming or that you're working on, be sure to send it to me and I'll, I'll you know, I'll take a look at it. So, uh, but some of them, yeah, some of them are say no. And, oh, I've had some, some cold-hard rejections from, <laughs> not only from them, but from some bookstores who who decided not to carry my book for whatever reason and but you know you you, you just let it go uh, you don't want to possibly be so cold and give them a bad response and maybe they won't look at the next one so that's what you do you just move on and say okay well I'll, I'll try somebody else what is it that has inspired you to write because you weren't always a children's children's author there must have been at some point at which you flipped a switch on this this goal Oh no no no! I'm uh, actually I write. I don't only write uh, children's. I've mm. written what four children's books, but I've written a novella. I've written. Oh really? A, I uh, thought your your genre was strictly children. I didn't know that. Oh you... no! Oh okay. Oh no no no, Kari. As, as I said, my 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 favorite book is The Legend of Diddley Squat, and that's for like um, young adults, um, young adults and older readers. Mm. Um, so I, I I go back and forth just depending upon what I feel I'm writing for right now. So four of them are children's books, but the other five, I have a novella. I have a short story, uh, you know, Word Food for Dudes is a, a couple of one-act plays and some short stories and some essays. So I, I, I write a, a little bit of everything, whatever moves me, man. So um, What themes know, it, do you like to explore what is it about about the medium that you enjoy 
Um, I just enjoy uh, the newness of it and mm. trying to do something a little bit different. Um, in a lot of my fiction books, just about all my fiction books, I, I go a little bit crazy. And what's so funny is it this drives my wife Janice crazy because she says, why can't you just write normal stuff? But I, I like to write about, you know, I love animals. So in my Diddly Squat book, Diddly Squat um, is a young musician. Uh, he was father uh, uh, was, you know, was, of course, had the funny name of Jack Squat. Uh, you know, you've heard the term diddly squat. You don't know diddly, so uh -huh. that's why I gave him that name. <clears throat> but he wants to be a musician, so he's traveling around uh, during the Chitlin circuit time. And he just, you know, he's always liked animals. He's been bullied by other uh, people, but animals just, uh, uh, for some reason, can feel his pain. And he actually finds out that he can actually converse with animals. And Diddly Squat's best friend becomes Sly the Squirrel. Sly is a flying squirrel. <laughs> and Sly goes with him and talks to him and and helps him, you know, navigate through his childhood. And, and he's actually stayed with him as he's, as he's in this, uh, this second realm of, of going through uh, the Chitlin circuit. And... I've actually, I actually based Diddly Squat on the story of Richard Pryor. Kari, are you aware of Richard Pryor? Uh, as a comedian, as a popular icon in our culture. And do you know anything about uh, about him growing up? Why growing he, up? Uh, no, all I yeah. know from Richard Pryor, what I know is uh, his addiction, and then at some point he was set on fire or caught himself on fire, and then he went to Africa and came back different. Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, when he heard the term, uh, he went over there and, um, uh, you know, he had used the word, and I hope this is okay during your podcast. Yeah, it's explicit. Back in the day, you could use the word nigger a lot. And when you're right. You're absolutely right. When he went to Africa and, and, and saw all the people there and how he was treated, uh, after he got back from Africa, he never said the word nigger again I mean, once he went over there. but But he was actually raised... By his grandparents, his mm. parents gave him up, and he was raised by his grandma, uh, his grandmother, who actually <laughs> ran one of the largest brothels really? down south. Interesting. So he was like, he was <laughs> he was raised by some of the women, some of the girls in the brothel, and they actually raised him good. They raised him to help raise him to be a young man. You know, his father and mother were still around, but were, he was actually raised by his grandmother in the brothel. And um, they took him to church and whatnot, and um, he actually, you know, they helped raise him and helped bring him up. So Diddly Squat is kind of like, it grew up in um, in backwoods, Mississippi, and um, lived in a brothel with his grandmother, uh, who ran the uh, Coppa Squat Inn. I call it the Coppa Squat Inn. And back in those days, you know, the entertainers, the black entertainers can only stay at certain places. Mm -hmm. So that's where they would stay, uh, you know, in places, you know, and blues musicians, Robert Johnson's and whatnot, they would pass through. And they actually saw something in Ditley and he was actually gifted a guitar through Robert Johnson and he started learning the guitar and 
that that's where I have at least my diddly squat uh, book coming up and that uh the next edition of that will be out sometime later this year but that's one of my favorite books but I've also written um when I retired in 2013 I said huh what what could I do something a little bit differently so the thought came to me to write a retirement book the first year of retirement mm. so it's called the baby boomers first hand first year guide to retirement 365 days of bliss or dis or not and what i did was every day after i retired uh starting in january i think it was january i retired on january 15th so maybe january 16th um i kept my journal with me and i would tell anybody out there who wants to be a writer who wants to write anything you got to carry a journal with you hmm. because things happen during the day or you know and, and you may think about it and uh, you, you might forget it so you always keep a journal but uh for this one i just kept a yearly journal and i just wrote down every day my feelings not only my feelings but some of the stuff that i learned and you know some of it is humorous such as uh you know, all your work clothes. I work for the Public Utilities Commission. And although we didn't have a dress code, you know, you had to wear a respectable shirt, respectable pants and whatnot. Man, when you retired, it, it's T-shirts, jeans and shorts and flip-flops. So you can just about hand in, you know, your good stuff to wear because that's all you're going to wear when you retire. And, you know, deodorant. You wear less deodorant because you don't need to wear deodorant. You're not going any place a lot of times, at least. So you wear less deodorant, but uh, I think so I'm going through it, a similar thing. A, I haven't, yeah. uh, I haven't intentionally matched socks in so long, just because it doesn't matter. So I just black one, gray one, brown one, either foot. It's not really important. Oh yeah, I, I am so glad to hear you say that. Right now, I have on a lime green sock with a white sock. <laughs> <laughs> Janice hates it, but but I started doing that too. I figure why, and, and you know what I've actually done, and she's eight. Uh, she hates. I've actually worn Mitch my uh, Mitch Mac shoes, tennis shoes, just to see if people care. And, and nobody has come up to me and said, you know, you got on Mitch Mac shoes. Nope. I may wear a. Uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a sneaker, a black and white sneaker, and a, a, a an Adidas sneaker, a blue sneaker, and and Janice actually hates it. Now I can't when I'm going to some place with her, I can't do that. I got to match. But that's funny that you would bring that up. But I but I do that, and of course you know about me and my uh, my patch jeans, man. Because you're about comfort right uh, it's about what what works what's comfortable i'm about uh, comfort well uh, i'm an old hippie i'm an old hippie i don't mind telling you but um i never throw away any of my jeans when my jeans get holes on them i know nowadays people say you know they it's a, it's okay to keep their holes on them but what i do i go to um i go to michael's or i go to joanne's i'm a regular customer and when i walk in they say how's it going mr filer hmm and I, I go and I get me some patches and I have um, I have this cleaners that I go to and I will cut out the design that I want on my jeans and then they will sew them around it so that it stays on there. You can iron it on, you know, 
But I will cut it out, put it on, take it around, and they will iron all my patches. And that's why uh, a lot of my people, a lot of people call me Mr. Patches, or my nephews and nieces will call me Uncle Patches. You know, because I do some DJing and whatnot, and actually they look pretty good. It's funny because I, I actually like get more compliments. I actually get more compliments than I get from the only people who doesn't like them is my wife Janice. She says, "Ah, oh, you wearing those those mixed up patch jeans?" But um, hey, I'm an old hippie man, and and that's what I wear. I, I wear patch jeans. Well, it's when you're, you know, as I think you're someone who is keyed in. And is keying in into what's important in life and the the texture of the outside of your pants <laughs> most days yeah. is not important at all. That's it exactly. It doesn't matter. I'm I'm being myself a little bit. But not only that, but you know, like I say, I'm an old hippie, man, and uh you know, I I one of my if I could go back one of the one thing that I wish I would have attended would have been Woodstock. I would have mm. loved to have been at Woodstock. How man. old were you when they had it? Uh, I think I was like, um, uh, maybe I was 16 or 17, mm. maybe 18. But I do remember I had my uh, my cousin Frank visiting from Chicago. And he came out and he said, um, I had a blue and, uh, of course, I had a blue and white. Uh, Datsun 1200 was my first car, but Frank came out to visit and he says, man, you're taking me to Hollywood. We're going to uh, this theater. He had already checked into it. And I, I think it was the Pantages. And this is when Woodstock had first come out, man. So we go in there. Now, I hope you don't mind me telling you this. But we do stop at the store before. And Frank gets a, a half pint of rum. Uh, we get a half pint of rum. We sneak it in. We nice. go to the front row. We go. We sit in the front row of the world famous uh, uh, Pantages Theater, and Woodstock comes on, man, and it just blows me away, man. Mm. Oh, blows me away. Santana like comes on first, and they just, oh, and then the whole thing, and then <clears throat> it was one of the first times that I ever saw Jimi Hendrix, and man, he just blew me away. And then, of course, my favorite came on, you probably know this, uh, maybe three-fourths through, and that was, of course, Sly and the Family Stone, man. And when Sly broke into I Want to Take You Higher, man, we were running up and down the aisles, throwing up the peace sign, Wanna Take You Higher, Higher, just singing along, man, and I'll never forget that, so... That's one of the things I wish I would have done, but uh, I've just always enjoyed because it was peace and love, peace and love, man. Mm. And it know? was anti. Now, this was in the context. Uh, my understanding is that it was in the context of the televised Vietnam War. Right. So they were you guys were would go home and see images of soldiers being bloodied and dismembered and carry or, right. or had been dismembered and had been carried on stretchers and. And that's what you could see on the nightly news. Uh, is that is that accurate? Oh yeah, yeah, that's very accurate. Uh, it was definitely uh, anti-war, and it wasn't that we we hated the country or anything, but we were just anti-war, just mm. peace and love. Why do we have to do this? Mm. And it was the young. It's the young people who were being killed. You know, mm. it was the young soldiers 
who were being killed and why are we over in Vietnam fighting anyway? You know, it's, uh, I remember what uh, 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 Muhammad Ali said. I'm not mad at no Viet Cong man. Why mm. am I going to go over there and fight him? Mm. And that's why he resisted. Uh, and he, he, you know, he got stripped of his medals. Muhammad Ali was a great man, man. But, oh, I remember, you know, Dick Gregory. Uh, all those famous people, man. Uh, Abby Hoffman uh, came out, man. And it was, it was just... I was just so much into it, man, and 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 it was during those days uh, uh, when I would go to uh, Hollywood in the Strip, and and you could walk along the the Hollywood Strip and and be with other hippies, man, and there was just a friendliness, man, and oh God, I can remember walking along uh, Hollywood Boulevard, man, and you could walk into the the Roxy. Uh, the whiskey a go go man, and you can walk in and just see these bands, and they got long hair, they got bands around, they got uh, patch jeans on. Oh, the peace sign was all over the place, and it was just so much fun, man, and just you know love and peace, man. And you know what? I know this may be varied a little bit, but um, I, I want to tell this quick story. I, I think it'd be uh, no, important. No, 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 no. It doesn't have to be quick. Well, okay, so, I, like I say, I would do this, man, and I would do it with, with with some friends, but a lot of times I would be it by myself. Janice wasn't big into it, but I would have some college friends that, that would go with me. But but uh, we would walk into this one place called the Rainbow, uh, uh, the Rainbow Bar and Grill, and you would walk up to the bar, and there was this guy who was there every time. And he, every time I'd go in there, he'd be in there. And I'd sit next to him, and we would talk. So finally I said, hey, man, what do you do? And he'd say, oh, he had a, uh, I think he had an English accent. Uh, oh, I'm a musician. I said, oh, and he had this funny hat with this cross above it. And uh, come to find out, I, I finally asked him, what's your name? He said, uh, oh, my name is Lemmy. Lemmy Kilmeister. And I said, Lemmy Kilmeister? Huh, huh. You know, it wasn't later till I learned that that was Lemmy Kilmeister who sang lead, uh, lead singer for Motorhead. If you look him up, it was like a punk, punk, he later became a punk rock group, but then <clears throat> he was in the other stuff. But uh, so people don't believe it when I tell them uh, that I actually sat down and used to have drinks with Lemmy Kilmeister. And, you know, if I had, uh, you know, then you didn't have uh, uh, telephones, so I didn't take pictures of anything. But uh, I met so many people like that, just walking up and down that strip, man. And, of course, there was the world-famous Tower Records. Man, th this is before you, you, you had to go to a record store back in those days to get records, if you want a record. Tower Records was the biggest store, man. It was on the it was on um, um, Hollywood Boulevard. I can't remember the cross street, but um, I would go there. You know, whenever I was driving back from college, I went to college in Cal Lutheran in Thousand Oaks, and I would always stop in Hollywood. But man, those those were just some great days, man. Just just some great fun days. I never remember. I had a dog in college, Julius, and I would bring him home with me when I come home. And one day I was in Tower Records, going through the record bins. Maybe I was looking for some funk. Maybe I was looking for some uh, 
man, uh, you said, I, 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 I call myself eclectic. Eclectic, as a matter of fact, Kari, is my favorite word in the world. Hmm. Eclectic, eclectic, do you know what eclectic means? My understanding is that eclectic means collected from a wide variety of sources, a collection that comes from a wide variety of disparate sources. Go ahead, nephew. You are up on it. You are absolutely right. That means that if it moves me, I don't care if it comes from somebody black. I don't care if it comes from somebody white. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what gender you are, male, female. Nowadays, if you're transgender, if it hits me in my heart, I'm going to like it and I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to support it. Mm. Back in those days, I became eclectic. You know, when I grew up, um, of course, I was mainly into Motown and whatnot. But then when I heard some Beatles, I heard some Rolling Stones, I heard some Jimi Hendrix, I heard some Grand Funk Railroad. I said, hmm, I heard some Steppenwolf. I heard some Bob Dylan with uh, Blowing in the Wind and some of his stuff that he's written. Man, I said, hey, I, I, I like anything. Of course, uh, of course, there was Funk and Motown. I love the Temps. I love Gladys Knight and the Pimps. When Funk came along, I love me some Sly and the Family Stone. I love me some George Clinton. Uh, you, like I say, if it hits me in the heart, I love it. Uh, it sounds like head, music was always important to you. Is that the case? Music was always important to me. I listen to music when I'm studying. I mm. listen to music when I'm writing. I listen to music when I'm walking. I, all kinds of music. And I am so blessed that I had people who showed me different type of music. Hmm. Uncle Harold, Uncle Harold, Uncle, uh, Uncle Yui, Uncle Herman, Uncle Jim, they all taught me the blues. They taught me some other stuff. And then, of course, we had others who taught me jazz. And when I learned jazz, man, Miles Davis, John Coltrane just took over. Man, I got, I got such a collection here of albums and stuff and i still prefer albums i, I earlier this morning uh, i was playing um some eddie harris uh, you know uh, well there's a pop, album there's a pop and a scratch me. on that vinyl that just can't be reproduced uh digitally there's something very gritty very authentic about the the pop and the scratch mm -hmm. of vinyl once again, I can't believe you said that, Akari, but yeah, that's it exactly. Like, everything is not perfect. You're going to get some scratches in life. Um, uh, vinyl records are, are like life. You're going to have scratches. The, you may have a pause, but you scratch it out, you rub it out, and you keep playing it. But yeah, yeah, so, uh, man, I just, uh, music has always been uh, a major, I, w I won't even say a minor, it's been a major part of my life. And man, back in the day, I mean, just, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky enough. I had uh, two cousins, Stephen and Sterling Rice, who were in a band in high school. They were in the Somatics, and later they became Master Fleet. And they would play at places like, um, uh, for those in L.A., they may remember Maverick's Flat on Crenshaw Boulevard, the Troubadour. And I actually became like a roadie with them. And and uh, we would go, and man, you would hear, uh, you know, Chaka Khan and Rufus. You could s s be right there with them. Uh, the t the Tim Prees, um, 
all these young, young and up and coming groups. Quick story about uh, when I was uh, when I was uh, helping Stephen and Sterling set up. Mm. We were playing at, at the uh, um, uh, Los Angeles uh, Arena, which is no longer there. Now they have that soccer stadium there. I can't. I think it was the L.A. Arena. I can't remember my name, the exact name of it. <clears throat> but Stephen and Sterling were opening, um, and then um, uh, the Temptations were the closing show. So I was walking along the bowels. Of course, I got there early. I was walking along the bowels of the uh, L.A. Sports Arena, the L.A. Sports Arena, and I go through this door, and like I'm, I'm underneath the stage, and I see this guy uh, lying on the piano. He's dressed well, but he's lying on the piano, and there's a bottle of booze next to him. And, um, you know, I'm just walking around, and I say, hey, you okay? And he say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, man, I'm okay. He said, uh, we're going to be going on shortly, but uh, I'm just down here and just relaxing. So then I'm down there, and we're down there talking. So then up top I hear them, uh, the announcement come on. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, next you're going to hear the world-famous Temptations come on. And the door to the side <laughs> up top opens, and these guys come running down. And they go, David, David, where is David? When this guy stands up, it's David Ruffin from the uh, Temptations. Mm. <laughs> so they help David, and they have to help him up the stage. Oh, no. and, and, and it's time to go on stage. And man, once this guy hits the stage and he sees the crowd... It's like he just wakes up and he puts on a performance. Mm. And I just say, oh, man, nobody's going to ever believe me when I say that I bumped into David Ruffin at the L.A. Sports Arena before he went on stage. And he was laying down on, on this old piano up under the stage waiting to go on. But uh, that's just one of the stories that I have from being a roadie with my cousins, man. But it it, it was such a, a, a great time, man. And... Uh, well, actually, I have another story uh, because Stephen and Sterling, you know, grew up in we, we grew up in Compton. Stephen and Sterling, uh, you know, we did came they? from I didn't know that. Huh? Did Stephen and Sterling grow up in Compton? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, they grew up in Compton. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, they lived down the street from us, as a matter of fact, at one point. But uh, so they would practice over at my mother's house, my mother's front room. We had a piano, and that's where. Uh, John Daniels, uh, Ronald Gibbs, uh, Stephen and Sterling Rice, Warner Alexander, uh, Stan Breckenridge, they were all a member of the group, but uh, they would practice. But but it was so funny. So at one point when Stephen and Sterling would master fleet, they were getting a little bit famous. You know, they, they came out with their uh, album and John Daniels, uh, who went by the stage name Linus Kife, he was a writer, man. He He was the one who wrote, you know, uh, their original songs that, that they sang. And one day, Stephen and Sterling told me um, they were getting in good, uh, and they had been uh, to Ike Turner's house. You know who Ike Turner is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was married to uh, Tina Turner. So he was going, and he was practicing this song uh, on the piano one day, and he said, yeah, Ike really likes this song. So I remember me and somebody else telling him we had heard uh, John, you know, uh, make sure that um, before you play your songs for somebody or something, make sure that you have a copyright because you don't want anything to happen to him. 
And John said, oh, no, 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 Ike is cool. Ain't nothing going to happen. So they were going out to the, I think they lived in um, uh, Lamert Park or Baldwin Hills, uh, the fancy black section of L.A., you know, back in the um, 70s. And John had written this song, and I remember listening to it, and I said, oh, man, man, that's a nice song. And I said, what's the name of that song, John? And he said, uh, oh, it's called Funkier Than a Mosquito's Tweeter. Mus- funkier than a mosquito's tweeter. Funkier than a mosquito's tweeter. Well, so about this time, when we told him to be careful about Ike, do you know Ike's sister or somebody came out with a, uh, an album? Do you want to know the first song on that album, what it was called? I'm going to guess that it was something about a squeeter. Funkier than a mosquito's tweeter. And, and, and he put it down... Song written by I can't I, I you know like I say my 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 mind is a little fuzzy, but I think it was by um, uh, either by him or somebody else. They had actually stole his song. Mm. Now it didn't become a hit, but um, I think John learned the lesson that that you had to be uh, you know kind of careful when you were doing stuff like that. Anyway, I, I don't know how we got off on this tangent, but it's just. Um, you know some of the stuff that um, uh, that happened back then. Well, you're talking about the, the spirit of the times and how important the music was. Exactly. What was it that made the was it was it growing up listening to Grandma play the piano or was it what was it that 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 seed of music that got planted in you? That's a very good question. I, I think it was Blondell, but then it was once again. Um, while everybody else was just, it, it was mainly, uh, you know, you turned on Soul Train. Uh, mm. You've heard of Soul Train, of course. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it was primarily like black groups. But then, like I said, I had other people who would, uh, my friend Eli Roussel, um, older brother named Gerald Roussel, he was the one who who, who kind of like turned us on to jazz and, and Miles Davis and other stuff. So, um you know, I, I just started moving in. I wanted to hear something different. You know, Soul Train and all that was good, but I enjoyed different. And I remember when Soul Train had uh, Elton John on, and then they had on uh, 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 Play That Funky Music, White Boy. That, that was one thing about uh, Soul Train. If Even if you were white, if you had a, a funky song on, they would have you on. And... Um, and also, uh, you know, when you would look look at American Bandstand, Stephen and Sterling, or cousins, you know, they won the dance contest back to back on American Bandstand. Really? You would turn that on. You would turn that on on every Saturday, and it's a, surprising that they don't have those shows on anymore. But those shows help fuel it and help fuel music, and you would watch stuff like that. Uh, and you know, Saturday mornings, man, were. Uh, were an eclectic time to watch TV because I remember at first starting off when we grew up in, in Compton, uh, Saturday was the day for cartoons, man. So we would watch like the Flintstones and uh, the Jetsons. And man, you, you would never miss stuff like that, man. And that started you watching uh, cartoons and stuff. And, you know what? I, I'm thinking about uh, another thing that happened. Uh, Kari, I hope you don't mind if I diverse just a no, little bit. No, no, no. No, I'm, okay, I'm, so I'm this... enjoying learning about the, the roots of your uh, 
about what it was the like in the house growing up. up. Yeah. The roots of growing up in Compton. Yeah. Like I say, yeah. on Saturdays, on Saturdays morning, uh, you'd get up and you watch cartoons. And I mean, that's just the way that it was. So we would get up and we would watch those. And I remember back in those days, this is when, um, by the way, we were, we helped integrate the city of Compton, my family, in uh, like the mid-50s. Um, so we were like, I think the second, second black family on the block, there was Mr. Brown who lived across the street. And then my father was big, you know, people were moving from down south. They, you know, they had to get away from the oppression, so they would move west or up north. And if they're coming west, uh, they would come to either L.A., but then Compton started growing. So my father became, of course, interested in civil rights. Uh, so uh, we moved to Compton, and Compton, we saw an exodus. Uh, you know, we saw white flight as more blacks, more and more blacks started moving to Compton. As a matter of fact, I remember uh, moving, on, uh, moving on Compton, we were, like I say, one of the first black families, but I had white friends. I had Larry, uh, had Larry and then um, uh, Danny down the street. And then all of a sudden when the blacks started moving in, I woke up and when I would uh, walk down the street, I would see these signs and they were for like for sale signs. <laughs> and I'd go home and I'd ask my mother Blondie, I said, Mom, what are all these for sale signs? And Blondie would say, well, she's uh, City of Compton is changing. More blacks are moving, and it's called white flight, Dwayne. And did you ever um, encounter so direct, overt racism? I, I'll get to that in a second. Hmm. No, not, not me personally, um, but there there was stuff going on. So anyway, I would get up, and I would, we would, uh, me and my friend David Polian, we would make it a. a we would throw rocks at the signs. Oh, we're hitting these signs. Uh, but anyway, so around these same times when, when we were trying to watch TV, or I remember my dad, Maxie, who was involved in the civil rights movement and who actually started the first uh, uh, Compton branch of the NAACP. Um, one, one Saturday, Saturday morning, you know, I want to get up and watch cartoons. Maxie said, he, he used to call me... Um, uh, let's see, Calvin was Scooter. God, I can't remember what he called me. Ah, I can't remember the uh, nickname that he called me. But he said, okay, well, uh, this Saturday, we're going to let you watch uh, cartoons. Um, we're going to pick it. And I remember thinking, we're going to pick it? What in the world's pick it? Hmm. So next thing I know, we're down on Compton Boulevard in front of Woolworths. Woolworths Department Store, which there no longer are anymore, but Woolworths had like the the this big uh, um, uh, uh, open glass window in front of it where you can look in and you can see the whole store. Now Woolworths is where 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 what I remember my favorite thing was to the left of the store when you walked into the door they had this big uh snow cone machine man where you could get some snow cones oh you can get some strawberry you can get some raspberry machine so uh i looked up and uh i looked up and sure enough there are all these mainly black people there were a couple of white people and they were carrying signs and on the signs it said no more jim crow or jim crow must go jim crow j-i-m 
C R O W. And I remember asking my father, I said, Who is this Jim Crow? Uh, what is this Jim Crow doing? <laughs> and father, my father said, Well, Dwayne, Jim Crow uh, is an issue where, uh, you know, these people don't believe that blacks are good enough uh, to work in the store. They say, They will let you buy stuff. They will welcome you. Come on in. You know, at least in Compton, you could sit in at the counter. A lot of, a lot of stores you couldn't sit at the counter, but out here at West, they let you sit at the counter and order a meal. You know, because these stores at this point, they they usually always had a a little dining area where you can sit and order a hamburger or whatnot. Mm. But it was next to the, the snow cone machine. So I remember saying, "Man, this Jim Crow guy," and my I would my father would put me on his shoulders and we're marching up and down and holding these signs. And so my father said, uh, Dwayne, the reason we're here is because this store here, why they will let you go in and buy a snow cone and buy anything else, they will not hire a person of your color to work in this store. Hmm. That is why we are here protesting so that they could hire so that one day you can work and make a living behind this store. They will sell to you, but they will not hire to you. And I remember, man, I don't like no Jim Crow. I'll be glad when this Jim Crow guy is gone. Because my father said, until they start hiring us, no more snow cones from Woolworths. <laughs> Do you know, did, did you ever... They were, boycott- they were boycotting the store, so they said... So until they start letting somebody like you sell a snow cone, we aren't even going to let you buy a snow cone. Did you ever encounter conversations about black ownership coming up or was it mostly or were the aspirations in your experience? I'm thinking of them as limited to employee because I'm thinking about Woolworths. Uh, You know, they they might hire black people, but that still doesn't mean that they uh, you know, that we're having stores in which you know black people are owners and those are the real in capitalism the real winners are the owners or the owner class and so we we still have yet to break that part of the ceiling as a as a black people i'm wondering did you ever encounter those conversations directly when you were younger uh no 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 back in those days there were very very few black owned companies Hmm. very 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 few i mean as Compton went on, maybe there were some, but I got to be honest with you, I don't remember um, too many of them at that point. Mm. And that was one of the, I mean, that was one of the things that was lacking. That was one of the things that we wanted. We wanted, uh, that's what we're fighting for, more black ownership. But uh, during those days growing up, there were, there was very, very little. But I think, uh, uh, you know, as the Black Panthers and others came along, that's one of the things that they fight were fighting for and they wanted uh, was for more people. Um, there, I, I think maybe the first black stores that maybe came along, uh, at least in Compton, uh, there was a music store. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, I think the, the the guy owned a music store, and um, maybe that was the beginning. But hmm. uh, very, very little at that point, man. This is back, way back then. Were you ever tempted to join the Panthers? 
You know what? Kind of. I had a couple of friends, but um, it was a little bit more extreme. Mm. Plus, my father, my father was a little, little bit. Uh, you know, he was more uh, into. They were a little bit more ex- extreme. I, my father was more into the NAACP, the Panthers, the Nation of Islam. Uh, they were a little bit more extreme, so. Mm, not really. I, I I would go to some of the things. I think I had a beret at one point. Mm. I would wear a beret, but I I was never really uh, uh, to that extreme because, uh, well, mainly because you know they, they were into carrying guns. I mean, you're mm-hmm. aware of that, mm-hmm. and 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 I understand wh- why. But man, my father always told me my father hated guns. Maxi Filer did not own a gun. I remember when the Watts riots started, I think it was 65, uh, Uncle Ambrose tried to give my father a gun, and my father said, nope. He said, I will never own a gun. Mm. And to the best of my knowledge, none of the filers have ever owned a gun. Um, and and uh, good for me because I, 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 I'm just not a gun, I'm just not a gun advocate either. Now, saying that nowadays, if you want to own one, you know, that's up to you. I'm not against it. This thing where they say the Democrats are trying to take away your guns, I don't think that's true. If you want to own one, good. I don't want one simply because I've heard of people having accidents. I've heard of children getting guns. You know, you you hear about it every day. Mm. Uh, Somebody will get a gun. Um... Man, we just heard today. Did you hear about uh, it? Was someplace, uh, and I don't know if it was in Indiana, Minnesota. Man, uh, a father told the son he couldn't go out, and 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 the young guy got a gun. Did you hear that, Carrie? Uh, uh-uh. no, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, it just happened. Uh, I think it just happened yesterday. Mm. I went out and killed all of, all of his family, shot six family members. But I, I, I've never been a, a gun advocate. Um, now I did like Angela Davis, uh, Bobby Seale. I liked them for what they were standing up for, but I was just never a, um, you know, uh, a, a, a Panther. Or, you know, I, I was just never the, that much. I was more into the Democratic Party and try, uh, you know, more on the Martin Luther King side. Mm. Although, although I did. Malcolm X, I, I did like Malcolm X. As a matter of fact, one of the first, uh, oh man, books that, that really turned me into want to be a writing was when I read uh, in high school, uh, Alvin Taylor, we had a black history class, and Alvin Taylor was my teacher, and one of our assignments was to read the autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley. Man, I read that book. Uh, I didn't put it down. Once I started that book, I read it all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really, really enjoyed that life. And Malcolm X is really, uh, he's a hero, man. I mean, you know, he knew he was going to die, you know, once he split with the, uh, with the Nation of Islam. But uh, I don't know. Uh, have you seen the One Night in Miami, uh, the recent uh, movie about uh, him? Is One Night in Miami and- about Malcolm X? Yes, Corey. Oh, I didn't know that. It's about one night after Muhammad Ali uh, uh, beat um, Sonny Liston. They're all at the fight. Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, 
uh, Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali, and mm. they meet up, and that's what it was about. And it's a true story. Uh, they met up, and they had some uh, differences that they had to discuss. But and Malcolm X, this was when uh, uh, Cash he was still Cassius Clay, but Malcolm X was bringing him over, and he was going to become uh, Malcolm. Uh, um, uh, Muhammad Ali, mm. but at the same time, Malcolm had run into some problems uh, with Elijah Muhammad, and he was he was about to leave uh, at the same time. And what approximately, uh, if you watch when you watch the uh, watch it on the documentary, approximately a year after that that me- uh, meeting, you know, Malcolm X was killed, mm. was shot and killed, but. Yeah, it's it's an excellent uh, and Regina King directed it, but it's a, it's an excellent one night in Miami. Yeah, no, you gotta you gotta watch it, Carl. Watch it tonight; it's very good. I'll take that as a recommendation. Yeah, yeah, I did. So, I uh, also read the uh, autobiography of Malcolm X. What I what I carry a lot from that book is how Malcolm was crooked. Uh, he was a thief. Right, he he ran with thieves. He was a drug user. Oh yeah, uh, he was a drug yeah. user. And he was a thief, and that's the life he lived. Uh, but then he found faith, and he straightened up. And there was nothing, you know, in in today's day and age, if someone were to lead that life, it would be very easy to drag them through the mud if their history wasn't already a matter of public record. Uh, but with oh, Malcolm, is... Malcolm X, uh, he was beyond that, and so he was in some ways irreproachable because what what are you going to say oh you used to be a thief he'll say yeah i was <laughs> oh yeah. malcolm x was great i mean you put it so uh, uh so poignant the way that you put it but that that's absolutely correct man but yeah yeah that's what, when he grew up yeah he was in jail yeah if you uh, uh spike lee did a you know a real good movie on him denzel washington played him if you want to yeah uh, see oh, yeah, that story that. yeah 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 but 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 it's so poignant uh, on, you know, what when you believe, when you stand up for your beliefs mm. and, and you got a, a wife and stuff and you know that at some point, I mean, he knew he was at some point somebody after he left the, uh, the nation that somebody was going to get him. Man. And sure enough, they did. I mean, him or uh, uh, Martin Luther King, man, they, 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 they stood, but they still they knew they had to stand up for what is right and to. To take a stand, man, and those—that's why those people are such uh, inspirations to me, man. I remember growing up in Compton, uh, in our hallway, and you've been to the house in Compton. The house is still there. Uh, as a matter of fact, your <laughs> your mother lives in it. Yep. Uh, yeah, you know, the house in Compton. But in the hallway, Blondell had pictures of uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, Malcolm X. Uh, no, no, I don't think she had Malcolm X. It, maybe later she did. But of course, uh, Martin Luther King. But uh, John F. Kennedy was one that she had. And man, and speaking of the Kennedys, I remember in high school, man, when uh, I think I was either uh, sixty-eight, I think it was sixty-eight or sixty-nine. Man, when they were both assassinated uh, the same year, man, just how horrible that was. Robert F. Kennedy and uh, Martin Luther King killed, man. That was that was horrible, man. Absolutely do you, horrible. Do you know why? JFK was such a galvanizing president. I'm not exactly certain why. I've never really looked into what made him that way. Because he was different and he stood up. I mean, he did fight for 
civil rights in his certain way. You know, there are some theories that he actually didn't do as much as uh, the reasons why he stood up for it was mm. some people say it was just to get the votes, the black vote, so that he could possibly win. But I think in his heart that he did want to change. And, uh, you know, he was a young guy and he... Uh, he, he did want to see some change, and it, it was just the right time for somebody like him. I can't remember who preceded him, but the country was ready for a change. And, you know, we were having turmoil, and he spoke calmly, uh, you know, we, and and he was just the right guy for the, at the right time. And, uh, you know, he, he when he spoke... He, and if there was something that he didn't like, he didn't use like some of the language that we use nowadays, the bad rhetoric or whatnot. Mm. And and he would he would at least listen to you and come up with a civil approach to stuff. I think that that was the main reason he 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 came up with a civil uh, uh, answer, even if he didn't like it. But he wasn't one to be yelling and screaming. And I think that that's. Uh, one of the things that pe people really liked about him. Hmm. Do you remember what he ran on to get elected? You know what? I don't. I guess you'd have been uh, you'd have been too young, right? I, I'd have been a little young, yeah. so I don't remember. Yeah. 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 I've only heard good things about JFK, and I don't know the the theory that I've heard is that the somebody who really like the status quo and didn't want to go away, go back to the gold standard was who killed him. That's the theory that I've heard. I actually, oh no, I take that back. That's who put the shooter together, the shooter from the window. I saw, right. I saw a documentary with uncle K that made the case pretty convincingly that actually one of the secret service members in the vehicle behind him accidentally shot uh, JFK while attempting to fire back at uh, the shooter from the window. Oh, I haven't, I haven't heard that one, but I know that, uh, uh, like I say, that was one of the uh, first instances of somebody, well, you know, a president being, well, Lincoln was killed, but up until then. So you're going to have all these other theories of what went on, and I, I, I really don't remember that much about that mm. uh, that period of time, Kari, because it was just, it was just so dark, um, mm. so dark, but... Uh, uh, but grandma you, had him, you, you were saying about the hallway, grandma had him on the hallway right along with Muhammad Ali. I had him on there with Muhammad Ali and then whatnot. And you know what, like I say, uh, uh, kind of a story <laughs> that I do remember. Uh, like I say, we lived in Compton, but uh, Maxie was from uh, Mariana, Arkansas. One summer, we were going to go back and visit uh, his parents in Mariana, Arkansas, right? Mm-hmm. So we had, uh, my father was notorious for owning um, uh, station wagons. Station wagons were like pre, uh, what are these, SUVs. Mm -hmm. That's because true, you right? could have. <laughs> yeah, I never really thought about that, but they were the SUV, SUV of the time. Yeah, because you yeah. had a back seat, yeah. and then in the back, you had an, uh, another area where you could lift up and you could have a seat. And the seat would be looking out the back window. So it would carry, you could carry four, five, six, seven, seven people in the, in the old uh, Rambler station wagon. Maxie was, like I say, a big 
uh, uh, politician, a big Democrat. So we had our car plastered with, uh, I think it was LBJ. Would LBJ run against Goldwater? I think it was LBJ ran against Goldwater. Okay. But we had all these uh, Democratic political stickers all over the car. Maxie is driving us down to Mariana, Arkansas. So we'd be sitting in the back, and when we got down south, I can distinctly remember when we would pass certain cars, this is where I learned what the finger was. Mm. People would see us with these Democratic, uh, you know, politicians' names on it, and they would throw up that middle finger to us, middle finger, middle finger. And I remember at one point, I started throwing it back at them, or we started throwing it back. Maxie pulled the car over and he said, no, none of that. Mm. You do not. You 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 let them do that, but you don't do that. We are beyond that. You know, it was kind of like saying, when they go low, we go high. Mm-hmm. You're not going to throw mm-hmm. any of that up. So we never got able to throw it. But I remember that uh, we would do all of that, and uh, man, it was something else. And, and going back and, you know, driving from California to Mariana, Arkansas, it took some days. We would have to stay at the hotels. Uh, well, we would stay at the hotels. We would stay at motels. And some of the things that I remember back then is we would stay at these kind of out-of-the-way motels, and we used to love to go swimming. So if it was during the day and we were taking a break, we'd run out. Uh, there'd be people at the swimming pool, you know, and they'd be out there enjoying themselves swimming. Well, whenever they'd see this band of seven black kids come jump into the pool, Next thing you know, we had the pool all to ourselves, man. <laughs> well, that that is overt racism if you experience okay, that. Okay, well then, okay, well then that happened. The car, well, hey, we didn't care. We didn't, but you know, because we'd run out, we would want to play with people. We didn't mind, but like mm. I say, we'd run out and jump in the pool. I'd say within ten minutes, we'd be the only ones playing in the pool, mm. uh, you know, because all all these people would gather their kids and they would leave. They wouldn't even want to swim with us in mm. the pool, man. So yeah, yeah, that that definitely did happen, Mikari. That happened because they thought the black would rub off, I guess, and poison them somehow. Exactly, or or do something yeah. for them, but uh, you know, and it would hurt us because. Uh, like I say, I wasn't raised that way. I was, you know what? When I grew up in Compton, uh, went to Compton High School, right around the corner from us, on on Palmer Street, lived this guy. His name was Martin Snyder. Hmm. What does that name tell you? What does that name tell you? Uh, he was white. Not only was he white, but he was Jewish. Okay. Martin Snyder lived in Compton. This is from uh, the late 19, uh, early 60s to the late 60s. And Martin was like one of my great friends, man. And he was just Jewish guy. And I absolutely loved him. And what's funny was my mother used to cut hair. I don't know if you knew it, but uh, I'm Blondale would cut hair. And she would cut any everybody's hair. Martin would come over and he was Jewish. And he had... Uh, you know, these distinctively, uh, you know, he had, uh, you know, black hair. Mm-hmm. He had the deep eyebrows. And my mother would cut his hair. But what I used to like about Martin, his father was a plumber. Um, God, I can't remember his name. 
uh, Hedaya, I think, was was hmm. uh, the mother. But um, we would go over and, and sit in front of Martin's house, and Martin would play the piano. He knew how to play the piano, and he would play he would play like jazz stuff and we would make up songs and we would sit there and we would play, play, play. Now, Martin was very, very smart. He and his, uh, his sister was actually a cheerleader a couple of years older than us, but she was like maybe the first, uh, well, not the first because Compton started off as being all white, but during these years, uh, she was actually a cheerleader, Miriam, and she had black boyfriends. Hmm. Oh, they, they didn't care. They didn't care. Um, but Martin it was like my real good friend, and it, 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 it's sad what happened to Martin. But he played on the basketball team with us. He got a scholarship to uh, Stanford. Okay. Martin went to Stanford. And I remember uh, when I came home from college one year, uh, and he came home, maybe our first year, and I came over and I talked to him, and he had changed. He was There was something about Martin, and I said... I remember I talked to his mother, and I said, "Guy, is Martin okay? There's something a little bit different." And she said, "Dwayne, Martin, Martin is different." He said, "She said, you know, he grew up among blacks, but when he when this is the first time that he moved out when he moved to Stanford, hmm. and and he 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 got with some friends and they started talking about black people and they started making uh, derogatory." remarks about Martin and it really really hurt him hmm. and he changed and Martin did change man and I remember uh, his mother he changed me in the way of being him. suddenly being anti he went from not anti-black to anti-black no 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 he became upset when he found out that the world had different views hmm. about, about black people that he did hmm. all he saw was being friends he didn't see color but when he heard these white people you know, talking about black people, he said, is this the way, you know, do people actually think this way about black people? And and uh, the last time I saw him, he just, he was like apologizing, um, you know, for, for, he said, man, I know what maybe you're going through. And I said, Martin, don't let that bother you, man. Hmm. You, you, you just keep being yourself. I said, you're a good friend. You're a good friend. Well, Martin ended up committing suicide. Oh, man. No. He ended up... Uh, he drowned himself. Uh, he he just went crazy. But it, part of it was because, like I said, when he went away to college and he he met some other white friends who didn't, you know, when he told when he was telling them, I grew up in Compton, and hmm. they said Compton, you grew up in Compton, and when he found out that the world thought uh, maybe a little bit differently about black people than he knew, you know, because he was from Compton, he mm -hmm. was he was one of us. He would come to our parties. It, it it just devastated him, and man, Martin Martin ended up committing suicide. Man, it was very That's very terrible. Sad. I'm and, sorry to hear it. Yeah, yeah, and I I would talk to his mother. I went to his funeral. It was the first time I ever went to a uh, a Jewish funeral, and of course uh, he had been cremated uh, because I was going in hoping to see the body, but he had been cremated. Um, but th those were some sad days, man. That was a sad day when when Martin, but. Um, yeah, because his father Irv was was a riot man. Like I said, he was a uh, plumber and he would fix everybody's, you know, and it wouldn't charge, wouldn't overcharge anybody, man. Mm -hmm. But he would fix your plumbing, any plumbing needs that you had, man. And um, that's just, you know, one of the things. Uh, Martin Snyder. I guess it's man. kind of a mixed 
it's kind of a kind of a a, a, a curse and a warning, uh, a blessing and a warning, kind of. Because if you have yeah. this child who's sufficiently uh, sheltered, it can mean that they can let their pure kindness and their pure understanding and their pure enjoyment of life and and go through past uh, skin color and they don't get hung up on that. But it also right. means that when they go out into the world, maybe it's a bit of a shock to see that it, uh, most people don't get past it. that, especially in this country. That, that, that was it exactly, Carl. You, you got it in a nutshell. And I think that that's what happened. And I still think about Martin time to time. Man. I'm actually really of the do. opinion that skin color needs to be more effectively and more meaningfully classified with hair color so when you fill out a job application do they ask you what color your hair is no why (laughs) because it doesn't matter and so really really you shouldn't have to check a box saying what color your skin is it doesn't matter ultimately for most jobs uh and so i'm part of the push that's part of the group that's pushing for that to happen of course that's not something that's going to change overnight uh, oh man that's a great idea going there that's a great idea. Have you put that in writing someplace? Uh, that's uh, not that, my that, idea. <laughs> there are a bunch of us. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's going oh, around. Oh, okay. I've never heard that. That that's a great idea. That's something that I I would definitely agree with, man. Yeah, one of my favorite yeah. thinkers, Sam Harris. Uh, that's I got that from him, because he says oh. ultimately that's ultimately that's what it is, right? And that's also to something we were talking about earlier. That's Doctor King's vision, right? The content of your right. character, not the color of your skin. Exactly. Uh, give a person a chance to show you that they are trustworthy or give them a chance to show you that they're not. They'll behave in a way that that shows that they're either honoring the truth or that they dishonor it. It doesn't matter what color their skin is. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Exactly, man. So uh, this has been a great conversation. You know what? You were talking about music. Hmm. If I could just digress Absolutely. just a little bit. Uh, but um I remember all the concerts that I've been through uh, and and me and, and my brothers, Kelvin and Anthony, would, you know, they're a, little, a couple of years younger than me. And we, we would take them. I would start taking them and I actually introduced them to Sly and other stuff. But, man, over the years, just some of the concerts that I've been to and some of the stuff that we would do, uh, I would always try to get backstage after a concert, man, and, and meet somebody and talk to somebody. And one of my most uh, favorite ones was one time we went to see Marvin Gaye and it was either at the Greek Theater or the um, Hollywood Bowl. I think it was the Greek Theater. And at the po- at that time, you know, we wear bell bottoms and uh, you would have your boots on and your, your shiny jacket and whatnot. And... I, at that point, I didn't have a beard, but I it, mustaches were big thing. Mustaches, and you let them your mustache go. So this go is down. early seventies, late mid yeah. mid seventies, late seventies. Late seventies, late seventies. There you okay. go. And uh, so we go in, and Janice uh, loved my my wife Janice loved Marvin Gaye, man. So I took her to see Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye put on a good show. So. Uh, <clears throat> Janice said, well, you know, all the other concerts you go to, you try to get back uh, backstage. You brought me here. I like Marvin Gaye. I'd like to meet Marvin Gaye. Yeah. So and back in those days, I mean, you could wait around. You would wait around and you, you there's a way to figure out where the people would be coming out, where the backstage was. So uh, 
we wait around, and sure enough, uh, I, Janice and I, dressed to the max, we mosey up. And Janice used to say that I look like Ray Parker. Do you know who Ray Parker is? He wrote uh, Ghostbusters. I'm going to Google Ray him Parker. right now. Okay, you'll have to Google. But they used to say that I looked like a cross between Denzel and, and, and Ray Parker when okay. I had my Mustang. So Janice said, okay, this time, say that you're Ray Parker. We get there to the line, and this is in front of the uh, uh, the dressing room. And they are letting certain people in, certain people they pass, pass back. So I get to the line, and, and it's a brother, and he says, Hey, brother, uh, what you doing? And I say, Oh, I, uh, I just wanted to say, um, uh, great show put on by Marvin. And mm. uh, he said, Well, who are you? And I said, uh, I'm Ray Parker. Uh, and he says, he looks at me, and he says, Oh, yeah, you are Ray Parker. So then we're about to go in, right? Mm -hmm. So then I get a tap on my shoulder. This is a true story. And I turn around, and it's the real Ray Parker <laughs> right in back of me. Jeez. <laughs> and Janice just says, oh, my God. And, and he starts busting up, man. And I, I say, I shake his hand and I said, Ray, I meant nothing. And he said, Brother, I understand. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. But the, uh, uh, Did the, they bouncer kick you says, the bouncer says, Get your ass oh, out of geez. here. What are you trying to do? But man, that, so that's my Ray Parker story. But uh, we've gotten backstage to so many people, man. We used to go, uh, you know, at the Rocks and whatnot. We go Larry Graham and Graham Central Station. We got backstage to see them. Um, I, I've been at concerts one time where I actually I had to help. Um, okay, let me let me remember her name. Oh, Natalie Cole. Hmm. Natalie Cole was beautiful, but you know she did. I don't know what she did, but we were someplace and man, she was just blasted, and hmm. we had to help Natalie Cole to her car. And because of that, I didn't get a chance to go backstage to see somebody, but I actually helped Natalie Cole get to her car. Um, there was a time, um, like I said, my, my, my cousin, Stephen and Sterling Rice. Well, you know that Sterling was real good friends with, uh, um, uh, uh, with Tito Jackson. Did you know that, Kari? Uh-uh. Oh, 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 they were, Tito Jackson, one, one time we were playing, uh, this was, uh, we were playing, ba we used to play baseball at Davis Junior High School, and we looked up. And we see all these nice cars come driving onto the field. Sure enough, Tito Jackson gets out the car. And he was just so down to earth. And he played ball with us. And I can show you pictures uh, where he would come to Stephen and Sterling's house uh, on Arbuta Street and whatnot. But um, so anyway, uh, uh, when Jermaine uh, Jackson married Hazel Gordy, do you remember that? I don't think I would be able to. Okay, well, if you ever see the documentary on the Jacksons, you will see that uh, uh, Jermaine Jackson, the bass player, Maisel, uh, married Hazel Gordy, who was Barry Gordy's daughter. Okay. So they had, because we knew Tito, for some reason, I was, in, I was invited to the reception, and the reception was held over by the Forum in Inglewood. So anyway, I get to the reception, 
and I'm having a good time, and I'm you know I'm not bothering anybody, but uh, I see all the Jacksons there. But if you ever see the documentary, you will notice one of the things they talk about in the documentary. Joe Jackson was obviously not happy that his son Jermaine was getting married. And I remember asking everybody, I would see Joe Jackson pass by, and he always had this frown on his face. Mm. And I would say, why is he so mad? <laughs> and I remember it. And then when the documentary came out, and they they purposely pointed this out, and I would tell everybody, I was there. I remember seeing him, and I remember saying, why is Joe Jackson so upset? But he was he was not happy uh uh that they were uh, that they got married and the other thing i remember about Why? being at that reception did we ever find out was did he just not like her oh he did not like her he did mm. oh oh you have to see the documentary you have to see the documentary but J- uh, joe was a different person um he he did not want to you know he did not want any of his kids or any anybody at that time he wanted them to concentrate on music mm. and to not get married mm. but the other thing i remember about that was I did see Michael Jackson pass by, and man, I felt for the guy because these girls were all over him. These young girls, he couldn't walk up and down. Uh, these girls were all over Michael Jackson, man, mm. and I will never forget, forget that. And I'm thinking, how can this guy ever have any peace? All these girls are all over him, man. So, I, you know, I don't know what brought this up, but it's just, uh, you know, some of the things that I was lucky enough to see, man. I remember Mike, uh, I think my first impression, what was my, so my earliest Mike would have been about uh, when he, he was already very, very light by the time I realized who he was. So it was way after bad. It would have been early 90s. Was he in Space Jam? Uh, with uh, Michael Jordan? I yeah. don't know. Let me see. Maybe he did a cameo. No, it would have been about that ride at at Universal Studios where he was uh, Captain Intonil. Was that what right? It? That would have been my introduction to Mike. And then okay. so after that, I would have been able to experience him contemporarily. But then everything else I had to learn uh, in hindsight and go back and listen to Bad and Thriller. And he had an amazing yeah. voice. One of the greatest singers of all time, hands down. Are you kidding me? One of the greatest performers. Uh, and, and you know what's funny? You know, nowadays I think about how come we don't have those self-contained groups anymore? What has happened to music? Well, we don't have self-contained groups where you play the bass, you play the guitar, you do this, you sing some. I can't think of one group. Can you name yeah. a one group? Yeah, uh, System of a Down, my favorite band. System. Oh, is that right? Uh huh. Oh yeah. Name another one that plays all their own instruments and sings. And sings, yeah. Uh, Incubus. Okay. Now I'm thinking I'm gonna uh, slant it a little bit. What about a black group that plays all their own instruments and sings? Yes. That's harder. <laughs> Back in the day, just think about all the groups that we had. Man. Mm. Just think about all the groups that we had. And music, I mean, everything evolves and it's changing. So I've always thought, and this is one of the things, you know, I have my, I call it my funk lab out here. 
I thought, man, if I could uh, start, if I could find a little group, they don't all have to be brothers like the Jacksons, but somebody, uh, just a self-contained band, get a CD out there or something, man, that they would take off because there's nothing wrong with it, but there are just no more black groups like that anymore. You know, everything is digital where you... You you punch it in, or you you don't need to play uh, an instrument anymore. You can punch in uh, keyboards. You can punch in drums, a drum machine. But a self-contained group, uh, you know, I'm 68, but that's on my bucket list. At one point, to maybe find and to help push forward uh, a black group. I mean, somebody like you know Bruno Mars. I mean, there 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 are no more groups like that anymore. Music isn't like that anymore. Well, Bruno Mars isn't even black. He's Filipino, isn't he? Well, I know that, but I mean, just the the sound and and the music that he puts out. Mm. Mm. It could have something to do with the genre as well. Uh, so funk, I would argue, funk uh, was a precursor to hip hop. Uh, and rock in in a lot of ways, although it was contemporary with, with classic rock. Uh, yeah. But funk, funk kind of partially split off into hip hop. I don't know what the where the rest of it went. Still funk, I guess. Yeah. Funk yeah. and jazz. Well, uh, another another situation, Nikari, that I think has led to this, and this is very is, is unfortunate, is in our school systems, music is not taught as much it's been done away with Mm. you know for for other things and that is part of it because when i was growing up uh you had a music class you could Mm. learn how to play the guitar in high school you could take you could learn how to play the uh uh uh, the piano uh the bass they don't have that anymore nope and 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 that is some of the reasons also why you don't have these self-contained groups is because it's it's not taught that more, you know, and, and you'd have to pay for it. You have to take, uh, you know, lessons on your own. And in the inner city, you know, people are going to use that uh, that money for something else. So that's why I will always support any type of organization that is offering any type of, of, of music, you know, any type of arts, any type of arts, yeah. painting, yeah. writing. You know, I believe in the arts because we have to have it. Yeah, I, 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 I know that we you need to be schooled in, in certain stuff, but the arts is what helps you get through when you have rough times in life, mm. as we've discussed. And that's part of the reason that um, that I think we're missing this. And, man, if, if, if I were to sell any of my books and make any of my money, any money, I would really donate half of it to start into something like what I'm talking about. And I would just love to see it because my grandson, Gio, when he comes over, man, I teach him. I, I, he loves to paint. I bought him a little guitar. He loves to bang on the piano. But I, that's where I can teach him. My, my wife and, uh, and, and, and others can teach him, you know, the smart stuff, I guess, the quote-unquote smart stuff to learn but i love the arts man i love painting writing play-doh we work in play-doh and because i think that that's missing um because you know i don't know if it's economics or what but to me that that's very important well it's Uh, cultural we've actually lost the 
art has lost its grip, uh, or it's more us losing our grip and losing our understanding of why art's important in the American culture. Art is the only meaningful rebuke of the inherent nihilism of what is. It's the it's the only yeah. way. So life has an inherent um, mystery in it. When you think about it, when you think about what we are, what we are, what we're made of, where we are, why we're here. When you ask those questions, you end up with question marks and they're hard question marks to carry around. The One of the most meaningful uh, endeavors that we can engage in to go after those unspeakable questions are the unspeakable answers and the unspeakable beauty that comes through artistic expression, whether it be writing, painting, sculpting, music, anything, anything that goes into that realm of unspeakability, uh, unspeakable expression, that's kind of an answer to the inherent uh, nihilism of, of life and the inherent division between ought and is. And so I'm all for art in every form. I'm for understanding not just art in the, the narrow forms that we that we uh, colloquially colloquially use, but also expanding it to living. So uh, you've heard of what was his name? Gosh, I got to think of his name. So he was the father on uh, the Wayans brothers. Clarence? Uh, no. John Witherspoon? John Witherspoon. Yes. Yeah, so John Witherspoon went on Joe Rogan. Uh, and they had a good time. They talked and laughed. And Joe Rogan made a point that uh, John Witherspoon actually lived out his art he he who he was was a work of art he himself uh and one of my favorite philosophers frederick nietzsche made this makes the same argument that you need to live the aesthetic life you need to live yeah. as if god is watching you live and judging you as if you are putting on a performance for god that's how you should live and art right. is an integral component of that i would argue wow kari Man, you've expressed it so eloquently. I mean, I, I'm just blown away, man. I'm just sitting here listening to the way that you did it. But I would definitely look look that up. So John Witherspoon, actually, that's going to be interesting. To, I'm going to look that one yeah, up. Yeah, because comedy is an art form. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Comedy is an art form. It's it's a, it's a important art form, uh, and I think it's I think comedy is actually one of the art forms, along with music, uh, that's going oh, to definitely. carry us through this this terrible time that we're in for now. Man, without question, and you put it like I said, you put it, man, you really, really put it, put it nicely, man. Well, thank you, Uncle Dwayne. <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, no, 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 I, I'm being serious. Uh, you you put it. So that others can, uh, at least I've never had it, heard it put that way, but I really, really enjoy the way that you've um, you've expressed it. Man. So, well, I get it. I get it from you. Uh, you know, I'm learning how to live from you, and you live with passion. You live with a deep love. You know, a, a lot of one of the things that I've learned from you is how to how to walk with your feet on the ground right so yeah. uh, you know in my what i've what i've done scholastically uh and then what i've done just been being you know you're young your whole life until you're not right so being around young people and they're kind of flighty superficial my generation is so flighty oh my gosh uh every time right. you make plans with somebody you have to be emotionally prepared for them to flake at the last minute uh and mm -hmm. so i've learned watching you 
that that's not the way to be. <laughs> the, the way you that need is, to be is a person is, of your word. You need to be where you say yeah. you're going to be. You need to be dependable. Uh, those are important things. And, and that's the way you got to be. I mean, like what we were talking about, uh, if you want to wear patched jeans, man, to hear you say you wear mismatched uh, socks, if that's the way you want to be, if it's a little bit different, you, you got to be it. You got to be that way, man, because... Golly, it, it 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 it's so frightening, and 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 this goes so deep, man, and, and it it just makes me think about, uh, oh gosh, I, I, like, you know, I had a work experience, where, uh, you know, I worked for well, I I worked for the state, but I had an employee hmm. who was who was gay. And this was during a time when it wasn't, I mean, it was okay to be gay, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. to me, it was okay to be gay. I mean, to me. But 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 when I found out, and he, he wouldn't come out, he wouldn't come out because, God, his mother, he said his mother would never understand. Mm. And, and, and I said, you can't live that way. You, you, you got to be you, you know? <laughs> You got to be you. You got to be who you are. And, Kari, do you know that the guy ended up, he didn't come out, and it ended, he kept it in, and it was it was literally killing him, and it killed him. And, man, I almost cried mm. when I heard it because he, he didn't want to come out. Mm. You got to be you in your God sets you out here, man. You... you you got to be who you are, mm. man. You, you can't hold it in. You know what? You, you can't hold it in, and I've always believed that, man. Yeah, and I I've think one of the best. I think one of the best uh, beacons to follow is enjoyment. Uh, now, that's not to say that children shouldn't learn discipline and young adults shouldn't learn discipline. They certainly should. Uh, everyone under the age of twenty-five should learn how to do some things that they don't enjoy. Uh, but right. it's it's. A privilege I've seen of free people that they can do the things that they don't enjoy that are almost entirely in the service of some greater thing that they do enjoy. So when I when you know, and I find myself to be to express my own gratitude today when I'm hustling, when I'm putting in extra hours, when I'm skipping that takeout and I'm eating what's in the fridge, it's because I know I'm building for my financial future, uh, right. and so. I can I can kind of enjoy that sacrifice, but if I wasn't enjoying my grind, I think there are a lot of people that are just grinding and they aren't enjoying it, but they just go, right. that's life, that's that's kind of what you do. You just grind and you ah. don't enjoy it. Um, right. I don't think right. that's the way and, to and be. You know, that that is not the way to be. And you know what? It it, it kind of brings up to me too. You know, uh, well, you know, I like to write and. If I read somebody or if I hear about something or I read something and like I say, if it hits my heart, like I was telling you, being eclectic, if it hits my heart, then I want to learn more about it. But mm. I remember um, in college, uh, you know, growing up, of course, Maxie, you know, he wanted me to be an attorney. You know, uh, Maxie was working to be an attorney. Uh, of course, you know the story that uh, he moved out here and Thurgood Marshall had uh, inspired him and he started taking the bar. 
Um, and he, you know, he started taking the bar in 1967. And he took it twice a year. He failed. 68 failed. 70 failed. 75 failed. 76 failed. 80s failed. 90s failed. It wasn't until 1991, 48 tries later, 25 years later, that he finally passed the bar. And you're talking about somebody who persistence. Well, uh, the, the kind of a twist amongst me was while my father actually wanted me to become an attorney too, I was a little bit different, man. I love the arts. Kari, I love writing. I love music. And it's along the way, all it would take is if I found something that or a writer or something that I thought was different, it would inspire me. And I remember in college, I went to Cal Lutheran College from 70 to 74, but the, uh, the book came out, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Have you ever seen that movie by Hunter S. Thompson? I have. Oh, you got to see it. But he was a journalist. He followed around a lot of uh, politicians, but he did all kind of journalists, journalism. But he wrote a book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, where he was actually down there covering something. But he invented this term, and it's called gonzo journalism. And I, it, it just struck my heart. Gonzo journalism is where you, the writer, put yourself in the character's spot. And you actually live that spot, uh, you live, and you express yourself through sarcasm, through humor, through profanity. And that actually helped me become myself. Now, Hunter S. Thompson, if you look him up later, he was a white guy. But like I say, I didn't care what color you were. But he inspired me to become my own writer hmm. so that when I wanted, started to write my stuff, I was going to write stuff differently. I've had people tell me, you know, don't do it this way. Don't do it that way. Maybe that's why I'm not successful. But until the good Lord takes me, I'm going to, you know, I, I listen to some of the stuff that they, of, of what they say, but I'm going to write it my way. And if I want to write it my way, I'm going to write it my way. If it's successful, good if not but it's the way that i'm going to be but it, it's one of the things that help inspire me but it just goes to show how you meet people in your life you meet writers you meet uh, uh just anybody you can meet somebody on the street and they say something to you and that one thing will catch and then use that especially if it's something positive use that and expand on it explore it Nowadays, with, with Google and whatnot, you can even go, you can Google anything, and if you think that that will help you exceed on what you're doing, use that. I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but um, you know when I think about uh, some of the writers that I uh, uh, that helped me, of course James Baldwin. Um, oh man, Spook who sat by the door, uh, Sam Greeley. Uh, but then, um, as I say, I'm eclectic. And when Hunter S. Thompson came out with that, oh, there's another reader. Oh, have you ever heard of, do you know who Ishmael Reed is, Kari? I don't. 
Oh, man. <laughs> you gotta, when we get off the line, you gotta look up Ishmael Reed. But he was, he's still alive, man. And he's from up north in San Francisco. Hmm. But uh, he wrote uh, this one book uh, called The Yellowback Radio Broke Down. And it's like uh, a Western, uh, the Loop Guru Kid. But it was like something that I'd never read before. I just It's kind of like a black, crazy, hip-hop nowadays Western. Hmm. Uh, the Loop Guru Kid, but it's called Yellowback uh, Radio Broke Down. But Ishmael Reed, uh, and I actually, somehow I bumped into him or I got a chance to talk to him. And he was just like in his book, man. He said, hey, man, you got to be you. It's kind of like what we're saying. You got to be you. So, you know what? Um, I, I, I'm not an attorney. I love attorney. I love my brother and whatnot. But I, I, I was just always different, man. And I was going to follow I was going to follow my way, and I'm happy following my way. Yes, I'd like to get out, uh, you know, one of these books to be a, uh, a, 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 a nice seller. And like I say, I'd give, I would easily give half of the proceeds to some charity uh, that's going to help promote uh, the arts. But uh, you got to be you in life, man. You got to. Otherwise, like, like I said, my friend, you, you could just fall over because you can't hold it in. You got to be you. And you're, this is a cliche, but, uh, you know, be you because you're, it's, it's one of the things that you're the best at in all of history. No one's ever been you. <laughs> you're the only That's version. Right. No, nobody's so ever going to be you. You're the yeah. best you that there's ever going to be. Uh, and you're doing it right. as, as we speak, right? This applies to all of us. As you speak, as we speak, as we sit here, you're the best version uh, of you that's ever going to be in history now i th I encourage everyone uh, 25 years age and older to right. investigate whether you're the best version of yourself that you've ever been from your own perspective because uh, yeah. i know there are times in my life where i've been uh, a deplorable version of myself uh, and it's only been yeah. through the help of my family that i've been able to make it out of that yeah, you're absolutely right and it's kind of like uh, well you know i do portraits and whatnot and mm -hmm. if i paint a picture of somebody um you know, when I give it to them, I say, hey, this is the best that I can do. So this is all that I can do. I hope you like it. But if you don't like it, there's nothing else that I can do. But it's the best that I can do. And that's it. I think they represent your style. I've seen your portraits. I think they're really good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. What's your... So anyway... You know, just moving on, you know, like I say, I'm blessed, um, you know, married uh, to Dr. Janice Filer for 43 years, um, retired, painting, writing. Uh, these are tough times right now, but I'm, I'm trying to get through them and, you know, I'm just blessed. You know, I'm blessed to have like nephews like you and just a, a great family, grew up in a great family. How often do you guys um, get to see your grandson? Well, and now not as much. Now we do what's it called? FaceTime. Mm. When you do face mm -hmm. FaceTime. But he has been over, but what's so funny, Lil Gio is, is three years old. <laughs> but um, you know, we don't hug, but we will do a uh, elbow bump. And and you know, he knows. He's so smart because I gotta give it to his parents. But he says, Oh, I know, Papa. He says, Corona, COVID. Yeah. I know I, I, I know I can't hug you. I know it. But um, 
a little while ago, we, we threw some catch. We were playing catch, and he was throwing the ball back, and he had on his face mask, and I had on my face mask. And uh, But he just loves loves reading. He loves Janice, of course, is a great nana. He calls her nana. He calls me papa. Uh, but uh, I've got a and, and the guy is so smart. I mean, kids are so smart. You you've seen that commercial about uh, talk, read, sing. That is that is so true. Mm. Kids absorb. Every, they listen to everything that you say. Believe me, they do. So continue to read to them, to talk to them. They can understand anything. Do not think that uh, the, you know. That the, they're misunderstanding what you're saying, man. It, it is something. It, it's my one joy. My grandson is my greatest joy, um, you know, right now that, that things get better and, you know, I'll get to see him, um, you know, sometime soon. Well, hopefully uh, my my plan is to that the three of us or the, the two of us and plus one be in a family way sometime this year. It hasn't happened yet, but maybe later. And so I can I pick your brain as uh, an experienced father of two outstanding professionals. Uh, what do you say for someone who's about to get their first bun in the oven within the next number of months? Are you serious? Is this happening? No, I mean it's going to happen. Uh, it's not hasn't happened yet. I'm not. This is no. Oh, okay. This is no announcement, uh, but it's it's going to happen within 2021, probably for sure. You will absolutely love it. It will change your life. It, it It's not the easiest thing because, hmm. you know, you're bringing a, a, another human into the world. But it is so much well worth it because you, you and your significant other will become more attached and go through it together, man. And just stop at the end of each day before you go to bed and just think about, you know, what has happened that day, what you've learned and how great it is. You're about to bring a new human being into the world and how responsible you are Mm. to help lead them, to help show them. And just remember that they are, they are looking at you 24 seven. So you have to be alert. Uh, you have to stay up on stuff, but it is just a total joy, man. And it just transforms your life, you know, and it, it makes life worth living. And like I say, it's just one of the most joyful things that you could ever remember. And you know, what's, what's funny about me saying this, Kari, and I'm glad that you asked me this. Because I wish I would have asked somebody the same question that you're asking me now. Hmm. I didn't ask anybody hmm. that question. Hmm. So I had to learn it as I, was, as I was living it. But you're absolutely right. When I think back now to, to my kids and I say, I wonder if there was more that I could have been. I wish I would have been more cognitive of what was happening day to day. So what you're asking me is a very good question. Be cognitive, be realize that they're taking in everything as they start to grow. Hmm. And, and maybe even keep yourself a journal 
as to what's going on. Because, I, I, like you say, I wish that I would have done more, and I wish I could have realized more. So th that is a very good question that you asked me. What were what were some experiences looking back now where you go without, you know, any, any unnecessary level of detail, but just some experiences where you go, yep, I see this differently in hindsight than I saw it in the moment. Um, just stuff is, is where, when maybe something went wrong hmm. or something went right, I wish I would have picked up Aaron or Lance and held them in my arms and maybe, discussed it in a little bit more detail. You understand what I'm saying? Hmm. Uh, you know, maybe something happened and uh, maybe they cried because so-and-so said something to them. I wish I would have picked them up and maybe had a, a deeper discussion because, like I say, although you may not think they're listening to what you're saying, if you just say one or two, if you say one or two words that maybe that will catch on to them and then they will realize, you know, maybe why it happened. So I, mm. I wish I would have been a little bit more. And I, I don't think I was a bad father or something, uh, but well, uh, I can, a little I can bit testify more. to the fact that you certainly weren't because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the fruit doesn't but, fall. But, but just you can a, judge by the fruit. Yeah. Just a little bit more attentive uh, to let them know, especially maybe at key points, maybe, uh, they cried about something and in my mind I'm thinking you know come on you know you got to grow up or something yeah I'm saying this to myself but I wish I would have picked them up and talked to them and maybe explained to them a little bit more and gosh this is really a really good point which you brought up and which I'm making now that I wish I would have uh, at that time would have stopped everything and acknowledged what they were going through and maybe really had a more heart-to-heart -heart, uh, discussion. It doesn't matter what age they were. So maybe that's something that I wish I would have done a little bit differently. As you said, I don't think that I was totally neglected something, but looking back on it now, because this is what I do with Gio when, when he comes up to me and when he asks a question or something, I make sure that I explain it to him, you know? Hmm. I make sure that I say, okay, well, this is what happened, this is what happened. Because he is, he's soaking it all in. That's why I'm saying, I think that uh, even at three, four, or five, that they know all of this. Kids know all of this. Hmm. Please don't overlook that. When it starts early, if they ask you something, explain it to them. Ask them after you explain it. Maybe say, okay, did I explain it? Do you have any other questions? And maybe get a nod out of, uh, out of them. I've heard that the will... phrase, if they're old enough to ask, they're old enough to know. Do, do you think that has truth in it? Yes, definitely. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I look, I look forward to it. Uh, you know, but I can, I mean, if we compare your performance to my father's performance, uh, yeah. You know, my father was absentee. Uh, and so right. one of the deepest scars that I carry is the feeling of being that nine year old and looking at a picture of your dad in some other state and going, OK, I guess it's more important to go be there than to be here with me. Yeah. And then you just got to, yeah. you know, that's a that's a weight that I carry and something else that I've learned recently that I, that I've learned from not having my father around. 
uh, is that dads explicitly or often implicitly, uh, intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, teach discipline. Uh, that's one of the things they do. Yes. And I've had to learn so much discipline <laughs> as an adult that, that I yeah. go, you know, often I go, yep, if he had been around when I was seven, maybe uh, yeah. I wouldn't be climbing this hill right now. You know, I'm happy that I can climb it at some point. Uh, oh, yeah. Damn. Yeah, no, what you, what you say is absolutely true. And, Carl, something I remember about you, just getting a little bit personal, man. You you were so funny. When did you start making all those faces? We had every picture. When you were little, man, whenever we'd say, okay, we're going to take a picture. Do you remember you always scrowling up your face, making the... Of course. I mean, it was a funny picture. I still do it. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I haven't stopped. Man, when I look through pictures, old pictures, and I see Kari, I say, "Oh, there's the Kari face where he's making that face, man." Yeah. yeah. No, I make yeah. uh, I make faces. I mean, if I can think, if I can say, I probably make the faces because I was rewarded socially for making the faces. That's probably the objective right. uh, biological analysis. But from a first person's perspective, uh, I started. It was about the time where Jim Carrey played the mask. So when Jim Carrey played the mask, uh, I started going around acting like the mask because I like the mask and kids imitate stuff. And my mom laughed and you guys laughed and everybody laughed. Uh, and so I said, OK, this is good. I should do I should be silly in this way. Uh, and that's that's where I learned it. And I've stuck to it. Uh, I've, you know, yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's exactly it. Now, my silliness, you know, it's it's ultra contained. I'm not as silly as they come because I've seen I've seen the the cutting edge of silliness i've seen deep yeah. silliness uh that kind of gets you gets you erased and so i don't mess with that but yeah. it's always a good time to be whimsical one of my favorite comedy series is actually uh monty pythons the flying circus and the oh. quest for the holy grail and and now for something completely different i really enjoy that whimsical <laughs> nonsensical oh. humor yeah oh yeah yeah so you you go back and you watch some of those huh yeah, yeah, like the uh, the Ministry of the Silly Walk. I probably <laughs> I probably watch the Ministry <laughs> of the Silly Walk once every year. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! No, you you are always. Uh, you know what? I, I say this about people, and you you are one of these people, Kari. Even w- when you're young, I could look in your eyes and I could see something. There are only so only so many people that I can say that. I say that about my grandson. But Thank you can see it. Be, because you could see that they know what's going on. At any age. You know, at, at their age, they, they could see what's going on. You were like that. Alex. You know, uh, Alex was like that. Um, I don't know if Lance or Aaron were particularly like that. But Jill's like that. But you were one of those. You could see that stuff going on, man. I mean, you could just look at them and, and tell. You know, if something were to happen, you'd look and say, you know, what is that? What's that? What's that? What's going on? Or you would ask questions. Why is this? Why is this? Yeah. My, my little Gio, he asks those questions all the time. What is this? What are you doing this for? Man, I'll come from downstairs sometimes if I change glasses. Uh, Gio, he will notice. He'll say, Papa, what you doing with all those you change glasses? What hmm. you doing with those glasses on? Hmm. I, and he would say, I don't like those glasses. Take those glasses off. Uh, put on some other glasses. And I'd say, how did you know that? And, and 
boy, Janice and I would just sit there and just laugh, man. But uh, you, you were one of those. You, you can look in their eyes and, and, and tell they're, you know, they're they're a little bit different. They're they're, they're a little bit beyond, uh, you know. Well, I got a, uh, you know, I got rewarded for it. So there was a time where I think we were actually in your kitchen. Uh, so this might have been uh, when Lance passed the bar. This is the way it's striking my memory. Uh, okay. And then Uncle K said, said something along, or maybe I, maybe it wasn't, maybe I'm misremembering, but uh, he said something along the lines of Kari's going to tell us why there's a there there. And so that, I carry that in my heart and my mind uh, like a like a notch. It's not something that can See? even be removed. That's what I'm saying. You remember certain, don't you, you remember certain moments in life. Well, I mean, I guess what, what I mean to say is that when you guys tell me how I am or who I am, I carry that to heart, right? It's it's mm-hmm. your influence. It's Uncle Kay's influence. It's Uncle Anthony's Uncle Dennis's influence. Uh, it's Sunny Stephanie's influence. Sunny Tracy's influence. And, of course, my mom's. It's everybody. It's you guys telling me, telling me how I can be the best member of the family that I carry. Uh, and, and, you know, I carry that, that to heart. And I imagine the kids, kids always do, right? Young kids. Uh, but then we're fortunate as adults. I think this is actually a Christian teaching. If you can be born again, if you can, if you can become an adult and then go into the adult ways of restricted, uh, disciplined sacrifice for the future and do that for a while, do it fully, do it until you're, until you're satisfied that you're capable of doing that. And then once you're doing that, try to transition back into childness, which is open, loving, participating in the moment. Try as best you can to get back to there. And that's, that's where I am today. You know, I, and when I try to go back yeah. to the child and, and try to keep my inner child alive, it's just, thinking about what you guys say to me and about me and how I can best uh, be a representative of the family. And that's what I take seriously. Okay. Okay. Well, that's very good. You, you know what? It, it, for some reason, this came to mind. And when I said you remember certain mo- moments, certain people in your life, but hmm. uh, I remember there was a, a certain moment in my life. This was in junior high school. I was at Walton junior high school. Um, we lived in Compton. We had to walk like two miles. We didn't have a junior high close, so I had to walk two miles. But I was kind of a little guy uh, in junior high school. And I think it was either the seventh or the eighth grade. But I had these two brothers, these two brothers named the Gaines brothers. Hmm. And for some reason, you know, they started taking my lunch money. You know, you get there and and uh, you walk the same in the cafeteria. Gains the Gains lunchtime. Barbershop? Huh? No, no, not them. No, okay. no, no. I don't want to. No, no. <laughs> I know the Gaines brother. Yeah, yeah. Victor, Victor's my good buddy. No, no, no. Okay. They, these were some other Gaines, other Gaines brother. But anyway, they would they would take my 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 lunch money. Hmm. And man, I was too afraid to tell anybody. I was too afraid to tell anybody. So then I remember uh, um, when you were in junior high school, it was the first time when you had to, I had P.E. and you had to change out in the gym for P.E. And you had to wear Mr. Banton, who was one of my great, man, one of my greatest teachers. He was a P.E. teacher. He actually was uh, uh, 
Mr. Batten actually played for John Wooden in the early years at UCLA. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, Mr. Richard Batten. He later became a principal. Mr. Batten is still living. He lives not too far from me in Carson, and I see him every once in a while. We And I actually mentioned him in my Square Squire book. But anyway, I, I, I don't want to forget what, what I'm bringing this up for. But anyway, so uh, you had to change into, uh, you had to wear a white T-shirt, and blue trunks. Or, if you can believe this, Kari, back then, they would give you SWATs. You would get SWATs in junior high school. I believe you it. Know what a, do you know what a SWAT is? I'm what a big a, SWAT with. I'm getting a SWAT or two it, it, in my it, day. It had a board, it had this holes in it, and you get a SWAT. So, anyway. Uh, Never with the board. I got SWATs still... with switches. But... <laughs> okay, but these were teachers that could Jeez. legally. Give you a SWAT in junior high school. You could get a SWAT in junior high school. Yeah, of course, you can't do that Oh, nowadays. And they cut it out, uh, you know, maybe 10 years after I left junior high. But anyway, so if you didn't show up and if you didn't dress out sometime, you would get a SWAT if you didn't dress out in so many years. Day. So anyway, these guys were stealing my lunch money. And uh, at 7th or 8th grade, and we had this one guy, this one tough guy. His name was George Taylor, and um, I didn't know him that well. But um, he came in uh, and he said, "Oh man, I don't have uh, I don't have any trunks." But he said, "I'm I'm, I'm going to get a SWAT again." And I had an extra pair, and I said uh, meekly, "I said I have an extra pair mm. of trunks if you want to use them." And he looked at me and he said, what's your name? I said, Dwayne Filer. He said, yeah, yeah, you're a filer. I, 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 filer, you're a filer. He said, you're going to let me use your trunks and I won't get a SWAT? And I said, yeah, yeah. So I gave him the trunks. He dressed out and he didn't get a SWAT. And he told me, if you ever need me for something, you just let me know. He said, I owe you something. So then a couple of days passed and, and the Gaines brothers had asked for my lunch money again. So I said, you know what, I'm tired of this. So uh, I saw uh, George Taylor again, and I said, George, I said, man, these brothers are taking my lunch money. And I said, I'm, I'm tired of this, man. I said, uh, you know, I, don't, I got nobody that I know how to tell. Uh, he said, they're doing what? They, I, I, he said, they're taking my lunch money. Hmm. He said, let me tell you this. After today, you don't have to worry about that again. Hmm. And sure enough, the next day, I go to the cafeteria, and I want to go to lunch, and I hope I don't see anybody. But the Gaines brothers are nobody, no place around me. <laughs> I never see them again. Mm. And so uh, George Taylor and I became good friends after that, you know. Now, here's the thing. George was a little bit of a, how do I want to put it? He was a little bit, he was more of a gangster, not a gangster. He, he, you know, I, I was an A student and stuff. He, he was different than me, but we, we had a, we developed a bond where, uh, you know, if, if he had a question about a, a class or something, I would help him. Now this developed. Did you ever look up to through... see if the George Taylor that you're talking about was the rapper of the game's dad? No, wait, caca, you're, you're hurting my story. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, I Googled it. I'm sorry. How did you know that? I Googled it. You gotta wait, okay? <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. 
All right. So, yeah, yeah. So we go through high school, and like I said, we become friends, and George and I become friends. But, yeah, you jumped to my story, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> I just Googled it. I didn't know. I I, thought, I hope I wish that I was making a connection for you. Oh, man. that George, uh, through high school, like I said, he was a little bit different, and he would get in trouble, but I would help him. Uh, but that's absolutely right. George Taylor, in high school, because he would, I, I told you I would write uh, short stories and stuff, and George would write like these poems, hmm. beautiful poems, man. And I said, George, you got to, I said, these are great. I mean, beautiful poems. Hmm. And then at one reunion after, uh, high school reunion afterwards, he started doing them. And he would come to uh, uh, his son uh, play basketball. Did you know the, uh, his son played basketball at Compton High School? I didn't know that, no. Oh, he was a great, oh, he was a great basketball player. Well, to cut it, everybody knows now, his son was actually the game. Uh, and, and the game, do you know the game lived down the street on our beauty street across the street from Wilmington? Yeah. That was, he lived down there. Yeah. Yeah. I but, interacted with his brother. Uh, yeah. I interacted with his brother, his brother, uh, was on, was one of the guys that we interacted with. And it was funny cause we interacted with him one day and we were talking about rap yeah. and, he said, and he said, yeah, uh, my brother's messing with Dre and we just kind of went, oh yeah, we kind of waved it off. Cause you know, everybody's brother was messing with Dre, right? But it was right, really true right. in his case. Man, but yeah, yeah, you got it, Kari. That was, that was George Taylor and he would tell, he would come, he would uh, come into Calvin's court and he would tell everybody, nobody ever misses with, messes with the filers. And he was right, but George was a good guy. And he was a poet. And like I say, he, he had these great poets. But I went to his, uh, um, I went to his funeral uh, when George died. It was at City of Refuge in Gardena, uh, No Jones, where I would go through occasionally. And I got a chance to see the game and I pulled him over. And I just said, man, um, I just want to let you know your father helped me out hmm. and whatnot. And he, he said, are you a filer? And I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, my father used to tell me nobody messes with the filers, hmm. man. But that, that is a true story. George Taylor, man. He was he was something else, man. But uh, like I say, he was a little bit on the rough side, but uh, nobody messed with the filers, man. George, George was something else. That's and you're right. That's one yeah. of the mixed. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the good things about our city, which is that yeah. you have you have this this grit uh, that comes yes. out of Compton, and it's a grit that can be applied to the illicit or it's a grit that can be applied to the academic or it's a grit that can be yeah. applied to the artistic, wherever you want to, wherever you want to stick it. Uh, people from Compton are gritty <laughs> and we'll, we'll man, stick to it and we'll succeed. Are you, man, you, are you writing a book, man? I mean, the way that you put it, it's so great. You know, you're absolutely right. But that, that, that was it. So I know a little bit of everybody, man. Mm. I, uh, I did, and 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 man, that was when I, 
one of my favorite stories, man. And George was something else. He he was a good guy. He he looked out for us. He said nobody's messing with the filers, and uh, he he would look after us, man. What are your what's this next what's this current story about? That you're uh, like on? I said, it's 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 the uh, it's the continuation of Diddly Squat moving through the Chitlin Circuit, and. He's going to bring on a new type of music, kind of like a Jimi Hendrix music. Hmm. But when, when he's moving through uh, the South, he meets, uh, and this is why it's kind of like pointed today, he meets like different immigrants that are working in the fields, but hmm. he, he just becomes more and more <laughs> obsessed with diversity. He loves diversity. He loves different people. How can you not like diversity, Kari? That that's how we learn. If we didn't have diversity, don't you like diversity of food? You like diversity of meeting different people? Well, I can think um, of I so I can I what I'm imagining is let's say let's say you grew up in a town of 7,000 uh, kind of a right. kind of a country town, maybe just a sub maybe just a small suburb, right? Kind of close to the city, but everybody in your town was and your town was relatively homogenous when you grew up everybody went to the same right. church everybody went to the same store so you didn't have right. to think about what people believed when you saw them in public it didn't because what people believe about the transcendent and what people believe religiously and what people believe politically those are important things and so you i can imagine a situation in which you came up and you never had to concern yourself with that you never had to think about what people believe because they believe the same thing that you did right but, but right. then culture slowly changes and now yes. people behind the counter register behind the register look different and you don't know what they believe people cro right. are crossing you in street and and people are standing next to you in line and you don't know what they believe. And I can see how that is unsettling for a lot of Americans that grew up in homogenous cultures. And so that's right. just another way of describing diversity from the other side where, you know, from us as Southern Californians, diversity is, is a, is a given that it's a good thing. It's a given, but for you some, are absolutely but that's not right. true for it's everybody. That's not true for everybody. You know what? I, I, I never even thought about it that way, Kari, but, but you're right. So maybe that's why some of this is happening. That's a little bit. Of, it's a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. We have the cultural divide in America is is real and it's deep. Um, and the age yeah, of the age of information is not helping. The age of information is actually salt on the wound. Uh, we didn't know. But in hindsight, the cultural divide that existed in America being so large geographically was ameliorated by the limited sources of information that we had in the late 20th century. So the fact that people in small town Idaho would get their news from Walter Cronkite just as the people from New York City did meant that when somebody from that small town went to New York, they could talk about Johnny Carson and Walter Cronkite in the same set of facts, more or less. Uh, but the age of information now, that isn't true. Uh, you can you can go out into the grocery store and talk to your neighbor and have two completely different views on what's reality and what's important and what's real. And you guys live right next to each other. Uh, and so the cult, the geographic divisions that have always d existed are now just being magnified by the, the by cultural division. Uh, and it's not an easy fix. There's not an easy fix on the corner. In my in my estimation. Oh, uh, hell no, there's not yeah. an easy fix man you Carl, you have given me so many 
insightful things to think about. But yeah, you are absolutely right. Maybe people from backwoods never met anybody of they weren't brought up that way and here in LA you know we, we've always had diversity and and it's a little bit easier so maybe that's why they see it a little bit differently man but yeah uh, but we're we're also fortunate in that uh, we can you know it's it's being here in Los Angeles Los Angeles County natives uh, that we can testify to the fact that a person's skin color a person's yes. sexual orientation, a person's presentation, gender presentation, whether it be one or the other or something off the charts, that doesn't matter. What does matter, doesn't matter. is when they no, begin to you... speak and when they begin to behave. Are they on the side of the truth? Are they honest? Right. Are they trustworthy? That's Are they civil? That's what matters. Uh, and in, it, any person from any color with any orientation and any identification can have the trait in which they're, they're trustworthy. Uh, and that's oh, ultimately really? what matters. You are absolutely right. Okay, you had mentioned what else I'm working on, but after this, Kari, mm. something that I, I've pinned, I've pinned it, and I said, this is going to happen. I've got to get Maxie Filer's story out there. I feel kind of ashamed that I haven't done this yet. So I'm working on, it's going to be a cross between a book and a screenplay, uh, uh, you know, about uh, your grandfather and my father, uh, Maxie Filer, I just got to get his his word out there. So many people have told me, uh, you know, how much uh, because of, they've read about him and his persistence, persistence, persistence <clears throat> that he never gave up and he's inspired them. I've got to make either a, a, a book or a movie about it or I'm going to feel horrible. So after I finish this one, like I say, it should be out sometime mid-year, uh, easily sometime in 2022, I will either have a book or I will try to get a, um, a screenplay out about Maxi. And I, I have the majority of it. And actually, Kari, I know that at one point, I, I'm willing for anybody to help me. And I, at one point, I think that you were asking about uh, doing this. I'm willing for anybody to help me. My name specifically doesn't have to be on it. I just want the story out hmm. because I think that it's timely and it's something that needs to be said. So I'm willing to help with anybody. Now, I do know that uh, we have a friend, uh, Richard Adams, who is working on a great documentary. He shared it with some of us. That will be coming out soon. That one may be coming out soon. But actually, um, like I said, I want either a movie or a book to be out about Maxie. And that's what I would be working on and easily will be out by, by sometime in 2022. And because then I, I will feel like that's one of my bucket list things and I, I can really accomplish that. It'll be my honor to help. Uh, I can tell you that in my investigation, I never got to uh, a seed that I thought I could really build the story on. So I was asking people, why didn't he quit? Why didn't he quit? And the best answer I got was, I think it was from Vivian, was that he was stubborn that way. Uh, yes. <laughs> and that's, and, and that it was really, uh, and so there was a story he told where he burnt my mom in the arm with the cigarette. 
Uh, he was smoking a cigarette, yeah. and he picked my mom up, and he burnt her arm, and he threw that yeah. cigarette on the ground. He threw his pack away, and he said, I'm never smoking another cigarette. And never he never smoked, smoked another again. one. Yep. Never smoked another one. Um, and he said, I'm going to take the bar. I'm going to pass the bar. And that's that. And t- t- 47 times? You fail it 47 times? I know it. And you're still it. taking it, and it's just it's baffling. And so, in my investigation, I, I am looking and was and am looking to to tell the story. I just never got to a satisfactory. Oh, here's the insight that made it possible. Here's what made. I mean, because is it just stubbornness <laughs> of the highest yeah. regard that that didn't that still isn't sitting well with me completely. Uh, yeah. So I will I will help you with your effort, and you know it's a, it's a story that needs to be told, and I'll be happy to do even more investigation to maybe somebody who knew him when he was a young adult who who can offer insight. I don't know. Oh, Kari, definitely we, we will work on it. There's one other little twist. I don't want to say a lot about it, but uh, uh, I will at least tell you this: uh, during that time, there was some funny stuff going on. Uh, with the FBI, uh, have you heard about some of that? Mm-mm. Oh yeah, where uh, J. Edgar Hoover and whatnot—they didn't—they didn't want certain black people to succeed in certain stuff. So mm. we will have to talk about this privately. But the, we have made certain requests that you're going to love this story, man. Uh, the world will love this story when 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 it gets, and it will be inspirational um, and it's truthful. And you're gonna love it, man. But definitely, you will be on board. And like I say, your mother Maxine has trolls of stuff that she's been providing me because I told her the same thing. I had this conversation with her, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Whereas I don't know, this happens to me. I don't know if this happens to everybody, but especially now with all that's going on, Kari. Sometimes I will wake up in the middle of the night and I would just shoot straight up, and I'll say. Why haven't I done this? Or what? What's going on? What? Why didn't I do this? Or why didn't I write this down? Mm, mm. But that that happened to me about uh, t- uh, uh, two and a half uh, weeks ago, where I just said, "How could I not have written this?" Because so many people have come come to me, and I know some people that that are waiting for this, and I would actually be almost kind of a little offended. Because I consider myself a writer. Why haven't I written this? Hmm. So this is going to happen, man. This is going to happen soon. And I know I got you aboard, Maxine, all the other family members. We're going to get this thing out. We're at least going to, to the best of our ability, you know, try to get this thing out, whether it be a uh, a book or a movie. But that's what I'm going to do after I get out uh, uh, my Ditley squat later this year. If you had to guess... Why would you say he never gave up? Uh, Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I think maybe as he got older, as here's why I think maybe, Kari. As you get older, and how old are you? I am 36. Okay, you're only 36. I'm 68. As you start to get older, 
you do start to think about more and more what legacy will I leave when I leave Earth. Hmm. As I get older, I start thinking about, I don't know when my time is going to come, but I want to leave something positive. So it's kind of like why I'm saying I need to get this book out. So I'm wondering if Maxi said, you know what, I'm never going to give up. Maybe it pushed him to do something a little bit differently in the early 90s. Maybe he took a different course. Maybe he listened to somebody a little bit closer who had mm. taken the ball. And that helped him get that over a little bit. Because Kelvin would tell you, you know he came close a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And maybe... He thought, well, I'm getting older. I don't know how much longer I'm going to live. Maybe that helped him get over. I don't know. But but I'm just thinking from my own standpoint, what I'm going through now, I'm thinking back on my life, and I think about stuff that I want to leave for my kids, my grandkids. So that's what I want to do. I, I would like to get my 10th book out. I don't know, 10 is like a magic number, so I want to get 10 out. And I want to get Maxie's story out. And then I feel like I've I've really, really accomplished something. So maybe that was it, Carl. Maybe mm. he, he listened to something a little bit different that helped him get those extra points and get over. I don't know, but you're right. After all those years... I mean, just think about it. The average person, I, I, Kari, I know people who, after taking the bar three times, mm. have said, "I'm done. I'm mm -hmm. not taking this thing again." Yeah, and they've quit. Most. Just think about Most. that. Three times as compared to forty-seven, forty-eight. Yeah. I think you could probably count on one hand the number of the people who have taken the bar eleven times. Right? Who, who exactly. takes it the tenth time and then keeps going? <laughs> right. 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 Who fails so I'm thinking, the tenth time and then and then takes it an eleventh? Yeah. So I'm thinking maybe that's it, you know, for the legacy that he wanted to leave, and you know, he's probably looking down, listening to us now. He and and Blondale are laughing, and they're going, "Well, yeah, okay, okay, young bloods, I'm glad you guys are at least talking about me and and thinking it, but." That was a good question. So maybe I think that's it. it. Like I say, when you get older, when you get my age, and you know what's funny? I never, I never thought about how I'd feel getting uh, older. But now I do. You, when you start getting older, you start thinking about stuff, and, and and you do want to leave a good legacy, maybe something, you know, behind because you know, you know, you, you don't know when your time is going to come. And so thinking maybe about it, why he persevered, it actually. Uh, I remember something that I think I heard him say, which was that he wished that he had gone to maybe a better law school so yes. that he would have been more prepared going into the early exams. And so I imagine from his first person's perspective that when he took the exams in the late 60s, uh, was it late 70s? When did you, uh, when did you take it? 24 67. 67. He started in 67 so when he started in the late 60s and, and early 70s he was imagining it kind of 
replacing the good law education because he, he went from a mediocre law school to the hardest bar in the nation. Uh, yeah, he went to Van Norman, and you're absolutely right. That's another thing. I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. He went to Van Norman, which probably uh, it's not no longer in existence. But but I don't know if you've heard, but without a doubt, you mentioned something. California's law school, I mean bar exam, is without question ridiculous. The mm-hmm. hardest in the nation. And and you know that they, they're thinking about re- reviewing it now. Can you believe that? They're thinking about now relaxing it and making it easier to pass after all of this. Yeah. Can you believe that, man? <laughs> I didn't know that. No, I don't know. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. Car, it came out about. I will send you the stuff after we get online. Yeah, they're 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 saying they're finally admitting. You know, there may be something is wrong. The California has the uh, the uh, the lowest rate of passage and whatnot, and maybe they need to do something. So they're reviewing it now. Can you believe that? Yeah, I don't think they should change it because if you look at. If you look at the trajectory, uh, the caliber of the California attorney, I think it's higher than pretty much California attorneys around the nation. Yeah. Uh, you know, you look at Reagan, you look at uh, Kamala, Kamala Harris. I mean, I don't know where she actually. I don't know where she passed the bar. I'm assuming it was California, but maybe it wasn't. Uh, I don't know. She went to Howard. Um, I can't. I can't remember exactly what law school she went to. But at least they're they're looking at it and saying, why is it so hard? to pass the bar in California as, as compared to other states. Mm. So it's something that, that they are reviewing. And and, and I, I glad, I'm glad they are. I'm glad they are. But uh, like I say, it's just the uh, the continuation of stuff. And I wonder if, if in their study, if they mention, you know, they mentioned something about my father, you know, taking it uh, that many times mm. and having to pass it. So... Yeah, no, it's a story worthy to be told. Uh, And I think you're one of the best to tell it. And I offer my services fully. All right. Well, I appreciate it. All right, Kari. So, like I say, I'm not a big talker, man, but I've appreciated the talk. Uh, I don't don't know what more I can say. You've said it. You've said it. It's been my pleasure uh, having, having you on. Uh, one of my favorite thinkers always says that, you know, there are only two modes of communication and it's talking and fighting. And so talking, <laughs> talking's the better one. Hey man. And I'm, I gotta tell you as a writer, you, you gotta start putting together a book, man. Some of your thoughts, uh, I'd be more than happy to help you, but, uh, you, you really said some stuff and I've taken some notes about some things that you've said, man. So in the future, man, you got to think about putting together a book, Carmeister. I think I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. All, All right. right, my nephew. Well, it's been my pleasure. All right. Well, I love you much, man. And um, thank you for, for having me on for this. And I hope, please, I hope I haven't offended anybody, but I, I just tried to speak my mind. I'm getting older, as I said, 68. So. Most of the stuff I said, uh, I, I, I mean, all the stuff I said was true. I may have missed some dates or missed something else, but I, 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 I really, uh, I just believe in speaking from the heart. And this has been a great experience. And man, I just wish you luck in everything that you do, Kari. I'll always be here, and we'll be working together on this, man. I think you hit the nail on the head, Uncle Dwayne. Yeah. All right, dude. All right. Love you.
Okay, love you too. Bye. Bye.